have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Headlines, breaking news. It's another hurricane. Oh, no, wait a minute. It's an earthquake. Oh, no, it's another riot going on. Oh, the world is falling apart. Every day, another shocking headline makes you wonder, what will tomorrow bring? That's why those who know what's coming are using today to prepare. I'm talking about getting your family some high-quality emergency food from My Patriot Supply. My Patriot Supply is the nation's leading preparedness company. They've been in business going on 14 years now, and they've served millions of American families. Now, they want to help you by giving you $50 off their popular four-week emergency food kit. You'll get four weeks of food per person with meals designed to give you more than 2,000 calories a day. Oh, by the way, this food stays fresh for up to 25 years in proper storage. So it will be there when you need it. Other food goes bad fast. So don't wait. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and claim your four-week emergency food kit. You'll save 50 cents per 50 cents, no, not 50 cents, $50 per kit if you act now. Now, you can go to preparewithsouthernsense.com, or if you're listening to the show on my website, just go to the top left-hand corner, click on prepare. Go to Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Don't wait. Do it. Today. 
Uh, all right. Uh, we're having a little bit of a difficulty here. We're just bear with me because for some reason, I'm hoping that we're still streaming. Oh, good Lord. Uh, I, it looks like... We're still, okay, looks like we're still doing it. Ah, oh, holy cow. <laughs> Welcome to another messed up opening to <laughs> Southern Sense. Oh, good Lord. I'm trying to push something live and it's just not doing it. Oh, this is. Well, we only get to do this, this on Fridays. <laughs> no, not, I, I agree. I agree. I don't know what the heck is going on here. Welcome to another messed up startup to the show of Southern Sense. Oh, here we go. We finally got it. Hooray. Yay. <laughs> You're, you're listening to Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, oh, half a dozen different places. Uh, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and right now it's telling me that my, oh, good luck. It keeps on giving me a little message that the, the, the broadcast over to YouTube and Facebook keeps breaking up and... I'm just hoping, guys, that you can still see us over there, oh, man. And it looks like the program has just frozen on me. What a wonderful thing to do. You know, it, this is what I love, Curtis. We we get these things. They, we use these programs to do the broadcast. Mm-hmm. And then for whatever reason, and it just shut down on me. It just completely shut down on me. I don't believe this. It turned itself off. So we're going to try to restart it, see if we can get our, our video going back up onto Facebook and uh, YouTube. Uh, but it, they say I mean, what, upgrade, what upgrade, can we upgrade. It's only 21st technology, 21st century technology. You'd think we'd be way uh, beyond yeah, this. You say upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. You know, and you do all the upgrades, and you test it to make sure that everything is going to open properly. And you say, okay, fine, I've got everything all set up. I'm all ready to go. So then you start the broadcast, and sure enough, everything crashes on you right smack in the middle of the broadcast. So then, you know, you hear you loaded up all your presentations, and you've got your guests lined up and everything else, and all of a sudden, this program that you're paying money for crashes on you. Thank you, technology. All right. Anyway, we've got ourselves a great show. This is our Christmas Eve show. Um, uh, Next Friday will be a pre-recorded show. Um, It's been... Actually, I should not even be on the air today because I'm just one week post-operative, and uh, <laughs> I really shouldn't be here. But anyway, I am. But I'm going to take next no, Friday off. Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm here too. Thank you. Anyway, um, we've got ourselves great guests, Ingrid Centurion. What a name for this woman! I mean, this woman was a fighter pilot in the U.S. Army. She served. And she, she got out and retired as a lieutenant colonel. God bless this woman. God bless her. And she's also married to a military veteran. And she is going to run against Nancy Mace here in South Carolina, District Number 1. So we've had um, uh, uh, Lindsay um, Piper Loomis on just this past month. Uh, now Ingrid Centurion, Lieutenant Colonel Ingrid Centurion, is also running. She threw her hat in the ring. More people are starting to throw their hat in the ring in, in District 1 to go up against Nancy Mace, who has has disappointed us in, in several areas. Uh, and I just had a cat jump on my lap. Uh, uh, Billy Prempe is also coming back on. Uh, he's running out of New Jersey, District 9. 
Uh, and we have a new guest, uh, Dr. Murray Sabrin. He's got a book that is actually exploding out there. It's called Navigating the Boom-Bust Cycle, and he sets out a roadmap for right now as we grapple with the inflation and fears of recession. And then my favorite from the Heritage Foundation, Hans von Spakovsky. And somehow or other, my chat room closed. Now, here we go. We got the chat room back. Thank you. Anything else can go wrong, guys? I don't know. But we'll we'll keep on... We keep on muddling along. But it's Christmas time, and you're not going to be hearing any Christmas songs from us, I promise you. Not right now. Uh, we'll save that for our special for the uh, 31st. Mm. And I have to have my cup of water with me because I was brought back to the hospital ER just the other night because I became dehydrated um, between the surgery and everything else. And the medications, I just couldn't eat too well because some of the medications got me really sick. So I threw them out. Trust me, I hate opioids. They went into the garbage. Uh, So now I'm back on a regular diet, plenty of hydration, and hopefully I stay out of the ER. You know, Curtis, that's, that's three visits to the hospital since October. That's, I think, three too many, don't you think? I believe so. Far too many. Well... Yeah, anyway, you can tell I'm nice and (laughs) But anyway, um, everyone that listens to our show knows that we start each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Detective Anastasios Sakos of New York City Police Department, New York. His end of watch was Tuesday, April 27th of 2021. And as I bring up the dedication, and this is from the Officers Down Memorial page, and it reads very simply, Detective Anastasios Sakos was struck and killed by a vehicle being operated by an intoxicated driver. Detective Sakos responded to assist at the scene of a fatal automobile collision on the Long Island Expressway near the entrance to the Clearview Expressway. Now, I'll put as a side note, I know this area very well, having traveled it every single day when I went back and forth to Brooklyn to report for duty in the 90 precinct in the NYPD. It is not, it is, I would say it can be a very dangerous intersection with people zipping across to get from one expressway to the other. He was redirecting traffic when a 2013 Volkswagen driven by a 32-year-old woman swerved to avoid other cars and hit Officer Sakos as he stood next to his marked patrol vehicle. The detective was taken to New York Presbyterian Hospital, and I will tell you that's one of the best, where he succumbed to his injuries. The driver fled the scene in her vehicle, but was later apprehended. An investigation revealed that the driver was intoxicated and driving with a suspended driver's license. She faces charges including vehicular manslaughter, reckless endangerment, leaving the scene of a deadly accident, and driving while intoxicated. Detective Sakos served with the New York City Police Department for 13 years and was assigned to Highway Unit 3. He is survived by his wife, six-year-old daughter, and three-year-old son. Posthumously, he was promoted 
to the rank of detective. And this is out of WABC, which is a local Suffolk County station. Family, friends, and brothers and sisters in blue turned out to bid a final farewell to NYPD officer who was killed in the line of duty. The funeral services were held in Greenlawn for Officer Anastasios Sakos, who was fatally struck by an alleged drunken driver on the Long Island Expressway in Queens. Mourners sang and prayed over the officer's open casket outside of St. the Greek Orthodox Church, as the service got underway, with Mayor Bill de Blasio and NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea in attendance. NYPD Special Ops posted on Twitter, in a final tribute, thousands of police officers from around the country stood shoulder to shoulder to pay their respects to NYPD Highway Detective Anastasios Tsakos, who was tragically killed in the line of duty. Rest in peace. Never forget. Outside, police officers and the community gathered in a show of support for Officer Sakos, known to friends as Tassos, and his friend and his wife, Irene, and their two small children. I wish we could grow old together, Irene said. That was the plan, but he was taken from us too soon. A steady thunder of at least 250 motorcycles roared up Pulaski Road as highway police from all over paid tribute to one of their own. This was the second day of services honoring the fallen officer, following a wake that lasted for several hours and drew thousands of mourners. Just 180 people were permitted to attend the funeral inside the church due to COVID restrictions. It does not make sense how someone could live his life right in every way and be taken from us so horribly, de Blasio said. But his heroism uplifts us. The mayor cited the officer's heroic 14 years of service, telling his grieving family that his tragic death should not be in vain. We have a chance to finally do something different, he said, to pass a law in Albany that will finally penalize those who drive drunk and hurt others and kill others to finally create consequences where they have not existed. Sakos, who had taken a sick day, who had not taken a sick day in 10 years, and he had 200 arrests, was posthumously promoted to detective first grade. I would ask everyone who could hear my voice today to take a moment to appreciate police officers like Anastasius, Shea said. A GoFundMe for the family had raised more than $225,000, while a separate fundraiser set up Fund the First raised more than $85,000. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation also announced it paid off the mortgage of the family's home. It was a particularly horrific killing, retired Congressman Peter King said. With all the attacks upon police, the way cops are being attacked every day, I think it's really important for all people, for that matter, to show up and show their respect. Peter Leach came from Rochester to honor Sakos. We're just a small show of support for this terrible tragedy that happened, he said. Sakos was diverting cars off the highway after a previous fatal crash when he was struck by a 32-year-old Jessica Beauvais, who police said admitted to drinking wine, vodka, and tequila 
before getting behind the wheel. She now faces 13 charges. But justice won't bring back this beloved officer, who is a husband and father first. It's hard, family friend Kelly Focanos said in the wake. They're trying to be as strong as they can, and I think they're just focused on being strong for the family. The family moved to East Northport less than a year ago, the neighbors say. Sacco's made a quick impression on them. He loved his wife, Irene, and his kids, and of course his brother and his parents who came from Greece, said NYPD Lieutenant John Pappos. The whole family's devastated. Anyone, whoever knew him, is devastated. Officer Sacco's. Stand down. You are end of tour. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Anna Stockos. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our promising future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
are back. You're here listening to Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Yes, we are back. Finally, I got it back up by George. It's on Facebook right now live. Yay. All right. I'm your hostess. That's <laughs> lost the hostess, the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my courageous co-host and also patient co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Oh, Curtis, I finally got it. I finally figured out what was going on. But I have to admit, folks, Facebook has blocked me from accessing my Southern Sense account, so I had to go through a back door. And I finally figured out how to get through the back door so I am able to access the Southern Sense Web page, uh, Facebook page uh, through another source. <laughs> but I got well, that. is there a good reason why they blocked you? Uh, supposedly, they're telling me that someone else attempted to access my account. So they asked me to send them a copy of my driver's license. So I did to verify that I'm the owner of the account. And they acknowledged they received it. And it sat there like a court-worn bottle of piss. And I sent a second request, and they asked me for my driver's license a second time, which I sent a second time, which they ignored, which they acknowledged, but then ignored. They've got my license and verification three times since December 10th, and I still, to this day, cannot. This is two weeks later, and I cannot access my own account. I've got to go through a back door. But they are unaware, so maybe I shouldn't say too much but I found another way to oh, do it. They may be listening. Mm. Apple. Let's go, Brandon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, like I said, we got ourselves a, a great, great lineup. And um, matter of fact, uh, our, our next guest, uh, Ingrid Centurion, who's running for um, against Nancy Mace uh, in South Carolina District 1, which is my district, um, I sent her a picture of my Christmas decoration in my living room. Once again, I have a full-sized Donald Trump in a Santa Claus outfit <laughs> with Trumpy Bear on his lap. I love <laughs> Sitting to see on that my one. Couch. Oh, man, this, this was funny because um, I had someone make a delivery, and I had them bring the boxes in because, you know, uh, with my surgery, I'm on a walker. I can't, I can't lift anything. And he brings the box in, and he stood there for a split second looking at Trump on the couch, and he's like, that's freaky. <laughs> that's freaky. I love it, but it's freaky. Uh, two of my mom's therapists came in because everyone knows that my mom is now living with me. She's uh, uh, also on a walker, so we've got dueling walkers once again, which can be interesting. Oh, crap. Oh no, no no no. No 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 no. No 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 no. I hope I hope that's not our guest that just called on my cell phone. Uh <laughs> I forgot to turn my cell phone off. And look at I've been doing this for how many years? And I think this uh, is one of the first times uh, I forgot to turn my cell phone off. <laughs> oh man. Quite a few. Quite a few. Oh, I apologize guys. Uh I have a funny feeling that might have been our guest, so let me see if I can uh this, this is live radio, guys. You, you never know what's going to happen. You really never know. Um, yeah, it's true. You know, it's like it's like going to the, the circus, and, and you're never sure what act you're going to see or where they're going to take you at, you know, in the act. Speaking of circus, um, I think the children today are missing out on something that was pretty legendary back when I grew up. 
as far as I What's know, there's no circus no more. You know, it was nice to go see three ring circus, elephants and all that, but the animal rights people and some of the points they made were, were good points, but I don't think you had to eliminate all circuses. No, that, that that is true. You know, and actually, the circus people took such good care of their their animals. They had to, you know, there had to be a trust between the animals that they performed with and the people that performed. Um, if you didn't have that, you know, it could be a massive, massive tragedy. Um, so I'm just hoping that uh, I'm just hoping that this is this is who what I was expecting. Um, I'm just going to get her agent and tell her uh, to have Ingrid call the correct number. So just bear with me, guys. Uh, yeah. uh, this is, like I I'm said. Gonna say, I'll say another thing. They they put a lot of people out of work that used to um, to work with. They they once called the freak shows. But some of those guys were making two, $300 a week. And back in the 60s and 70s, that was a lot of money. Um, a lot of them weren't able to work regular jobs like us, um, but they were exceptional people, and they were using their talents, you know, for the betterment of um, their own economic situation and and entertaining others. I, I really don't think people look down on them. I never did really like the term freak show, but you know, basically they were people who were extraordinary, let me put it that way. And um, I enjoyed it myself when I used to go to the um, the fairs and things like that, especially um, in Pennsylvania. The Allentown Fair was one of the more more notable and famous fairs in, in that, that area. But they really did put a lot of people out of work that worked the fairs and the um, circus. So. You know, what, what people don't realize is a lot of those people that did work in these fairs and circuses went on to become famous in Hollywood and Broadway and everything else. They used those talents. And, you know, they were not ashamed of who they were. And we do have our guests in on the line. And that's what I thought. Let's welcome onto the show for this first time, running for um, South Carolina District 1 against Nancy uh, Mace, Ingrid Centurion. Good afternoon, Ingrid. How are you today? Good afternoon. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Merry Christmas. Today's show has not gotten off too well. I got to. I have to apologize. I mean, I have had anything that possibly can go wrong. And Curtis knows <laughs> that seconds before we went live on air, I said a little prayer, and I think the good Lord wasn't listening too well. <laughs> so. He'll get it eventually. Oh man. I mean. Um, I've, I've been watching the field that's been growing. Uh, for some reason, South Carolina District 1 always attracts a lot of great candidates. And I remember one year that there were 16 people running all at once. Wow. And that was the one that Mark, ran, Mark Sanford ran, won the first time. Um, and I actually had 12 of the 16 candidates on the show at the same time. Talk about hurting cat singers. <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. That's Seriously, that's a, a feat. Yeah, and that was, I believe that was 2012. Uh, yeah, that, that was, that was her, and I was only doing this for two years. So considering okay. now we're now, uh, I'm going into 13 years later now next year. Wow. So 
We're doing you one at a time for now. Maybe we will bring a bunch of you on later on, closer to the election. But it's going to be very interesting. There are some powerful people with good credentials coming up against Nancy Mace, and you are one of those that are at the forefront, I must admit. You've got a great background. You served in the military. You're a lieutenant colonel, a fighter pilot. You're also a trainer. Yes. Uh, you've got, you also have a commercial license prior. I mean, at the age of 16, you went and raised $3,000 just so you can get your license. What 16-year-old today will do that? Um, you know, I've just always been very focused, very determined. You know, being raised by a single mom, we, we always had to work hard, and I knew nobody was going to be able to give me anything. So you have to work hard. You have to save your money. And um, I am a very conservative, fiscal conservative person. And I, I hate to see waste and abuse, and I've been raised that way. So uh, I wanted to be a pilot, and, you know, they say it, it costs money, so I went out to the airport and got my private pilot license. Man, and from there on, you just soared. You're also a combat pilot. You've, you've seen not only in, in the Middle East on the war and terror, but here on our own borders. You know, we have this open border policy under this current president. What is it that you saw there that you can take to Congress and say, this is what we have to do, guys, to get our country back? Yeah, I, I really want to talk about this because I was very concerned after President Biden took office and he immediately reversed all the good policies President Trump had. And having worked on the border for two years, I've walked the border, I've flown the border in the middle of the night, I see how open it is, and reversing all those policies was a serious danger to America. It's another reason why I wanted to get more involved in politics. As a professional in this area, I can bring all the expertise that I learned. I was actually the science and technology officer at Joint Task Force North, and I did classified research I looked at every piece of technology on the border. We analyzed it. I did this with NAVC Air. It's a classified document. And we want to determine what is the best technology for our border. And, you know, it's all different because the environment is different. We go from, we go from the swamp area. We go to a marina. We go to high mountains where it's very hot, desert, completely open. There's over, you know, 20 types of barriers from, in, in, from a picket fence to no fence to, you know, steel walls to brick walls. So how do you, how do you guard, you know, over 2,000 miles of border? It's really complicated. But at the end, I want to share the, the, the number one thing we could do to protect our borders is to have more Border Patrol agents along our border. These men and women are out there alone by themselves guarding miles of border. And I don't think the average person who's never lived on a border town understands this. No, we, you and I live, you know, on the coastal. Um, so we really think about the border. But yet what also people don't realize is that every single state that has an airport or a port is a border state. So now we also right. have not only the problem of a fluid liquid southern border, but we also have now over the visa overstays, the people that come through on a tourist or a, or a uh, employment visa um, just disappear into the fabric, and there's no way to trace these people. And, and we're actually getting more illegal aliens coming through that way than we do actually on the southern border. 
But yet they exactly. come to the airport, yeah, they're screened, yeah. and they come through the board, they're not screened. So it's six and one half dozen other. It's, it's bad anyway. Uh, I was in San Diego. We did a mission in San Diego. We were out there for over two months. So you have all those boats coming in. This is another area people don't realize. People come in. Boats come through. They bring, they bring drugs. They bring people. They, bring, they could bring anything. It, it, the mission is so large, and this has to be under surveillance 24-7. And then you have tunnels that they're building in different areas of the country. Then you have the air borders. Air aircraft were coming across our border and, you know, can and can still come across our borders, you know, below radar. We have to really understand that there are threats to America. And I don't think the average person realizes that, that you know, they're just they're just happy living wherever they're living and they are not seeing it. And if you work in law enforcement, you understand this. Yeah, um, very well, because I was on duty. Uh, in the 9-0 on February of 93 when the World Trade Center was attacked the first time. And my sister-in-law was in there at the time. And it, that that was the precursor. And people don't understand how vulnerable we are. You know, I watched when they tried to take it down in 93. And then I was living here in South Carolina when they did succeed in 9-11. And people, for some reason, don't think that this could happen again. But with the invasion we have on all of our border sites, we are extremely vulnerable today. We are. And, you know, not everyone understands, you know, drugs and fentanyl. And it's not just people that come across, okay? They bring, they bring substances that, you know, it's a business for them. You know, they're selling it black market under the table. And that's what we need to understand. And it's just sad that uh, this administration is allowing it. And they're not doing anything about it. It really is, for me, I think it's a, a serious national security um, issue. And that's one of the reasons that I'm running. I want to be able to go to Congress and bring my expertise and knowledge in this area and come up with, you know, something. We, ha- we have to have a systematic approach to um, tracking people and knowing why they're here, how they got here, and um, having a process so they're tracked um, we don't know where they're coming from. We don't know what they're bringing. That's why you have, um, they check for plants, right, at the border. They check for things that you could be bringing disease. You can bring so many things into this country. People just need to have lesson, a lesson in this. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, you've got a great website for your campaign. It's your last name. Oh, thank Centurion. you. C-E-N-T-U-R. I O N for Congress. I keep on wanting to put I A N. I had a, I did correct the website. I got the correct one up there now. Don't worry. <laughs> but um, it, it gives you where you stand on issues. And one of the big things I am dying to see you go up against is AOC and the Squad. I, I mean, yes. the way that they are attempting to bring back socialism and the way that they are going after um, Lauren Bobet or Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Matt Getz and several others that they're going after, um, what would you do to help tamp down the uh, squad? Because well, I'd love to see you kick butt. 
<laughs> exactly. Being, I'm, I'm first generation. My father came here legally. He learned English. He took his test, and he became an American citizen. And he was so proud to become an American citizen. And he worked so hard. He had all those jobs. He came here to work to make a better life for himself, and he appreciated America. These ladies don't understand the Constitution. They don't know our history. You know, they, they do not realize that they're living in the greatest country in America, and they're actually taking advantage. We, I want to teach people that people all have always come to America for a better life and to work, and we have a generation that doesn't want to work. They want their student loans paid back. You know, I was raised, if you borrow money, you pay it back. Right? You, you borrow, you, you, you ask somebody for money, you gotta pay it back. You know, that, that's like honor. Um, you don't take, take, take. And for, for people to come to this country and then act like they, um, are owed something, this is where they've got it wrong. And that is the yeah. biggest difference between these ladies and I. I've worked hard, I appreciate, I'm a compassionate person, but we have to, we have to teach people how to work and, and sustain themselves and learn, not sit back and ask for a handout. Every socialist country yeah. in the world, we know. The government wants to control your life. The government, you know, medical, medical government free from the government, it's, it's, it's never going to be any good. But these no, women don't understand funny. that. No, it, it, they, they've been given handouts, 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 and they expect, that's all they expect. You know, right. the path is going to be paved for them. No, no, no. You've got to create your own path. And once you create your path, then you pave it and say, I made it this far. But they don't understand that. See, I'm only second generation American. My husband, God rest him, he's gone now five months, 24 days. I was an immigrant. And he and his family, if you, you mentioned the word socialism, oh, boy, you better duck for cover. Because they were survivors of first the Nazi invasion and the socialist invasion. And they were refugees to the United States. You know, they don't understand what true socialism is. And yet you do because your family fled it. That's right. And, and also, we need, I have so many friends. I'm very cultured. I love other cultures. You know, I speak Spanish. I know a little bit of Portuguese. I love communicating everywhere I've gone, Korea, Germany, um, Iraq. I've, I've always learned the language. At, at least I know how to say, you know, my name, how are you? And they love that. They appreciate when you understand their culture. And we have to understand that socialism is the path to communism. And we're currently seeing Democrats pass socialist legislation that increases censorship over speech that keeps politicians in power and is giving government unprecedented amounts of power to manipulate elections and that's the truth we don't want the government that's what a republican is that's what a republican conservative i believe a lot of people don't know why they're you know whatever political party but it's because of we the people you know we don't want the government telling us how to live our lives that's what it comes down to. Hey, Grim. That, go ahead, Curtis. This is my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, also a Navy veteran. <laughs> oh, awesome. All right. I, I hail from Philadelphia. That's my, my um, town of birth. I live in Florida, though. And I noticed that when I visit Philadelphia, it's 
of course, it's not the same as when I grew up there. It's gotten worse, matter of fact, the crime and and everything, the gas prices. And what I tried to um, um, enlighten my family members and, and friends up there about who are Democrats, because that is a, a Democrat stronghold, you know, Philadelphia. I try to let them, you know, know that, you know, these things that are going on there, the high crime, the gas prices, you know, soaring out of this world, things like that are the result of failed Democrat policies. And when I do that, you know, it gets them to thinking, you know, because I'm telling them, look, you know, you keep voting Democrat, this is what you're going to get, you know, to um, separate their um, their plastic and, and recyclables from the trash can, the normal trash, you know, can. And if they don't, they get fined, heavily fined. So, you know, I, I let them know that, you know, they've been regulated, mandated, and penalized. And that's what you get under Democrat rule. And I think we need to, um, you know, express that to to Democrats who may just be on the borderline of becoming Republicans because they they need a reason sometimes to um, make that leap. And I'm giving it to them. And believe you me, they are tired of what they see, they see going on in these urban cities. So I was just wondering, you know, if you share some of the views that we need to let them know that what they're living in, because I really don't know the, the urban areas of South Carolina, but I'm sure you have some that have these um, problems, these issues. And I, I would really reach out to to them because that's one way I feel we can lessen the hold that the Democrats have on the black community and other minority communities. You're you're 100% right. The minority community, they're not informed in a lot of areas. They don't know who to vote for, and um, they actually many of them don't vote. But the ones that do vote in these Democrat strongholds, they need to look at look at look at Chicago, uh, look at some of these places. Even here in South Carolina, you know they're voting, and you know they don't have the best education. It, it's about we the people. I, I wish, you know, I could, you know, wave my wand and have the education be number one here in South Carolina in these rural communities, you know, low-income areas. Um, you know, I was raised by a single mom, so I know what it feels like. We grew up without medical insurance. My mom raised us as a waitress making less than $10,000 a year, four kids. But she never asked for a handout. She worked hard. She knew that if you want to make a better life, you've got to work, you've got to fight for it, you've got to save your money. But you also need to have the best education. And if we could give, you know, if our public education was the best in the world, because we're not, we're really failing, we, we would have a, 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 a generation that knows our history, knows the American story, knows the fighters that fought for freedom. I grew up studying Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King. I had one year of the Constitution when I was in fourth grade. I knew that we've got to fight for our rights and we have to speak out. That's how I was raised. And I don't think the children today have that. They, they are just, they're not focusing on the basics. They're so worried about other things it's really confusing them. And they've and been it, brainwashed. They have. Well, that brings up an, a point. 
that brings up an important point, um, the federal education system. Um, this banning that and bring it back down to the state and local levels, would you be willing to work in Congress to do that, to remove any federal influence so that state and local, and that way we can get rid of critical race theory, we can bring back our founding documents and founding principles into the classrooms, starting in the upper grades of elementary school through junior high, high school, into college. I mean, we've got attorneys being uh, put, getting their law practices that have never once read the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, much less the Magna Carta or English common law, and I can go on and on and on. You're, you're, you're 100% right, and I, and I speak about this. We have a lot of issues with our public education in South Carolina. We have poor quality instruction, fundamental subjects, and we are focused right now that, you know, they're, they're focused so much on sex education and other things that, you know, you, you got to get the basics down first, and that's reading and writing. And you know, in South Carolina, the kids graduating from high school, they, they don't even need the competency standards to get jobs at BMW and Volvo. They're, they're graduating high school with a very low-level reading comprehension level at, at the fourth and fifth grade. So what I'd like to do is, one, I, I, I think that, yes, we've got to give the control, you know, back to the state. And I'd love to see parents more involved in the children's education. And, and I want to, you know, I, if I could, like I've said this, I said I believe you know, that the federal government, um, we should abolish the, the federal education system. Um, and my priority would be to, to do that. And if that's not possible, you know, I'd fight to require that any state that accepts federal funding must allow parents to take their share of school funding. So, you know, the dollars should follow the student. And I want to help those parents out there that want to homeschool because, if you want to homeschool your child, you shouldn't be penalized for that. And right now, I have met so many people that are homeschooling their children, and they can't even join a local club at the high school when the state is getting federal dollars for that. So we've got to be fair. We've got to be fair uh, across the board. Yeah, well, that brings up the question of sports, too, because even though they're homeschooling, why could not these kids also participate in the sports if the federal dollars are going into the school for these sports? Exactly right, and I'm big on sports. Sports is so good for our kids. You know, it teaches them team playing. It teaches them communication, how to work together, which is such a, a big life skill, right? I know there's people out there that are kind of closed and may not be – they're introverts, Right? But one day these introverts are going to have to get out in the community and communicate with people. And, yeah, homeschool kids should be able to compete in sports. But I know in some cities and towns they're not allowed. And, you know, I, I guess it's a local issue. They've got to fight to get their kids involved in these programs. Or, you know, the city might have a, a basketball team or a soccer team. It's, it's a, the kids are losing out. And it, oh, it, is that at, it shouldn't be, you know, it's, it's not at any fault of their own. We, we should be encouraging um, children to play sports. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many issues that we, we could start talking about. And once you start getting into one, it opens up a whole nother can of worms because there's so much that is going on that's wrong. And, you know, they've been going after our First Amendment rights. 
And um, we're finding where Fauci was actively working to prevent information about the virus or anything else going out, uh, where he's actively trying to get people like uh, Jesse Waters fired, Tucker Carlson, Tucker, teeth and backwards, Tucker Carlson being fired. You know, people that speak out against Fauci, who is an appointee, he is a government employee, he is not an elected official, but we're allowing him to control our free speech? What is going on here, Ingrid? Why, why is it well, all of a sudden what I say is, is, is bad, but what the other side said is perfectly fine, even though it's wrong? Right. Well, I, I've, I've noticed, you know, whether you want to call them, um, you, know, you know, left liberal, there are groups of people out there that they're group think people. They don't want to hear your side. They put their fingers in their ears like children, and they don't want to listen. And this is the problem with the Democrats and certain TV channels. They literally push out the information, and this is the way it is, and this is not the way it is. We, we have to teach our children to challenge, to question. That's what science is. That's what inventors do. This now, we have, we have a group of people. Um, and, I, and I hate to put labels, but we have a group of people that, that this is what they are. This is, they believe, and if you don't believe like they believe, you're the bad person, and they will do everything to hurt you, to harm your business, to harm your personal finances. This is what we got to realize. These are, the kind, these are the type of groups that are forming in America, and this is communism. You, in, in communist China, you fall in line or you disappear. And this is what they're doing here. I see it. And, and this is what we have to express to people. We all can have our own opinion. And, and they may even really, really believe that. But that doesn't make it right and that doesn't make it true. You know, we were founded on the predicate idea of free speech. And the five uh, principles in the First Amendment, the freedom of the press, the freedom to protest, uh, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion. But yet they attack each and every one of those. Now, heaven forbid you say Merry Christmas. And thank you, Donald Trump, for bringing that back. And people are now happy to say Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah. Uh, but they attack the religion uh, with the COVID virus. Oh, no, no, no. You can't have church because everyone's going to get sick. Now, wait a minute. What happened to freedom of religion? I mean, we had ministers being arrested and churches being fined because they still met to express their freedom of religion, and yet they violate the First Amendment. And then when you speak out against it, again, you are fined and you are violating the First Amendment. Why isn't anyone protecting the First Amendment. You know, this, we see all of this even in the, in the comedy space, right? Comedians get out there, comedians say some outrageous things. But, you know, it's just a joke. They, they know. They're, they're basically calling out the truth. And now all of this, from, from the minute that they took, you know, religion out of school and prayer out of school, and they took our faith out of school. This is, was the down hit, you know, the down slope of America. And, and we have 
people who, who don't stand up because, you know what, they really don't have faith. They really don't have a strong spiritual background, upbringing possibly. Everyone has their own relationship with with God. Everyone has their own relationship, right, with Jesus Christ. Some people don't even understand what this means. I, I, I tell people the story about the centurion in the Bible because it's the story of the centurion in the Bible is the story of faith. And I said this to a group. I said, you know, people don't understand what faith is. And me being a pilot, I say, it's like the wind. You don't see it, but you can feel it. Yeah. And that's a big, huge amen. You're going to start getting me crying real soon. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. Some people never understand. You know, when soldiers are in combat and war and when someone's in an environment where they think they're going to die, they start praying. They start calling for their mommies. You know, they think they're going to die. And that might be the time that they say, okay, wow, there really is a higher power out there. But we have to give everybody the time to learn this. And when they finally have that faith, they move forward confident, walking confident, speaking confident, knowing that they're here for a purpose. And it's not a selfish person purpose. That's why they they say they're public servants, but they're not serving the public. They're serving themselves. And whether it is they want money, they want celebrity status, they want to be on TV, they want to get that next big business gig so their bank account grows. This is where the American people need to start realizing what's happening here. And right, we just right. have to stand behind our American principles, you know, of what America was founded upon, and that's the Constitution, and that's Christianity and faith in God. Right, right. You know, we, we have, have too many legislators being... that get in office. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, said, I really don't think they have the faith, and they're afraid to speak out. Yeah. You know, if I, I sometimes wait to hear when someone's ready to give testimony, and you get, gave pretty damn close to a, a really good testimony. And you know, when I listen to um, politicians speak, I wait to hear something like that. Wait to hear their faith come through with what they're telling you. Are they just talking at you, or are they talking with you and sharing? And here I'm hearing you talking and sharing which is going to make you one heck of a fantastic congresswoman, you know, because you, you actually believe in your bones what you're saying. And this is what I like, and this is what I want to hear, and I think this is what the voters out there want to hear. Someone like you that could go head-to-head with the squad, head-to-head with Nancy Pelosi uh, and everyone else out there trying to destroy our country and making it a socialist nation. Um, but you, you got yourself a heck of a fight because with this pandemic – uh, we gave up so many liberties. We gave up so many freedoms. We surrendered uh, willingly, thinking that it was going to be something temporarily. But they don't realize once you give up one of those freedoms, once you give up one of those liberties, you may never, ever, ever see it come back. And this is what we got to fight for. Because with the mask mandates, the vaccination mandates, the censorship of free speech, um, the lockdowns, the the loss of jobs that are, are going to illegal aliens rather than to American citizens. We're in such a mess here, Ingrid. 
We are, and I, and I want people to understand. I I know I understand terrorists. I understand you know the drug cartel. I understand bad people, and having lived in a state that is the the most left liberal state in the country, and seeing how city councils basically become abusive tyrants, they create their own laws. We cannot have that here in South Carolina. We have to fight for freedom and conservatism and stand strongly and proudly. When you give in, you, you, you lose that. And then we're, we're a very trendy country, right? It's like a trend. What's the new trend? The trend, 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 trend. And once you don't stand for those principles, you allow yourself to be violated, you can't go back. And that's what I want people to understand. This is a beautiful place. This place has beautiful history, strong history, environmentally, everything. The culture, these are, these are beautiful people. And, even, and I know we have a lot of different people coming here, but we need to make sure that we stick to our founding principles, know our history, and preserve that. You ever go to a small town around the country and you get there and you're like, wow, this place has not changed in 100 years. Now, some people say that's a good thing, and other people will say, oh, no, it's a terrible thing. But, you know, so what, you know, what side are you on? You, of course, we're all going to eventually change, right? Communities will change. But you want those communities to be safe. You want them to advance um, technology-wise in, in, a, in a better direction. You want better transportation. You want better infrastructure. You don't want to see the city go downhill, and that's what I want to mm-hmm. do. I want to fight to conserve, preserve South Carolina and low districts. I, I want people to say, you know, you know I, I was the best congresswoman that ever was in Congress here in South Carolina because I was able to bring efficiencies to the low districts. I'm a very systematic person. I, I like everything to be more efficient. <laughs> I like people to well, work smarter. I, I, I like to conserve things and just be you know, in, in this beautiful nature where we're conserving um, the natural environment. Well, you know, I, I got to tell you this, and you will be proud of the people here in the first district, especially here in Beaufort County, because when they had the meeting last week up in Columbia about the redistricting and they were going to take us here in Beaufort County and shove us into the second district, we mobilized and Oh, Ingrid, we mobilized like you would not believe. <laughs> Beaufort County. All right. By the time we got done, um, there was one person speaking on behalf of Joe Cunningham um, for tearing us apart. And I believe it was a total of 14 of us. And mine was an email because I was get, I was on my way to the hospital for my surgery. I was actually in surgery at the time. Uh, when they were having the meeting last week, and um, I made sure that my email went not only just to the committee, it also went to um, my my congressman, uh, the congressman to on the other side of my district here, and to my state representative. And I made sure, and I asked them to read it into the record. And I know that there were four, there was a total of fourteen of us to one Cunningham person, and consequently, the first district at this moment is not moving. But I'm warning anyone else out there that's listening that here is here in the first district, especially here in Beaver County. The next meeting is this coming Wednesday. 
So check in with my Buford Tea Party website. I will have information up there on how you can turn around and say thank you to the community and please remember to keep us together. Remember to thank them, but also remind them that we do want to remain together. But that said, see, I'm always on the fight here, Ingrid, always on the fight. Well, thanks so much um, for having your show and, and getting, um, you know, the messages out there. People need to listen and people need to think. We've got to get them to think. We've got to ha- have them use critical thinking skills, not just take in everything and believe it. Mm-hmm. Always use fact, never attack, and find a way to also emotionally appeal to them because that's something that the left is very, very good at. And we are good at using the facts, but turn those facts into something that is that, that they can communicate with, that they can understand and put their, their minds and hands around. And once you can do that and you humanize that fact, you've got a good chance of winning that argument. And that's a little trick that very few conservatives use, but we've got to learn how to do it. Anyway, that's my that's my rant for the day. <laughs> well, moving on, um, we, the pandemic has changed the way in which we vote. And very few people realize here in South Carolina, we do have ballot harvesting. An individual here in South Carolina can collect up to 12 ballots and harvest those ballots. But we've got to change voter laws, but we can't have the one-size-fits-all. We can't have the federal government take over all of our, our elections. What would you do to preserve our statehood here, our ability to control our elections, but yet bring back election integrity? Well, um, you know, House Democrats are passing socialist legislation, H.R. 1, you know, disguised as voting rights. Uh, and that that's terrible. The states have to control, and and they run their elections, and I'd never want the federal government involved in any type of election process. You know, each state does it. Each state does it differently. That's another thing. And I was a maintenance test pilot in the Army. I'm ISO 9001 qualified. I understand quality control. I understand software companies and um, bugs in software systems. And so for anyone to think that the election process, that there's no flaws in it, they're wrong. They're not they, – one, they, they, need, they need to understand that there are systemic errors in the election process. And when I say sy- systemic errors, this is human errors. People make mistakes, right? The, the post office makes mistakes. The computer systems also can make mistakes. They can be um, coded improperly. There's just so many things that can happen here. And so I want everyone to know that, you know, I want to demand election integrity, and what, what would I do different is the whole process needs to be, we need to have quality control, and we need to have audits, kind of like a no-notice inspection. When, when I was a fl- pilot and I was flying, we could have someone come and walk in and say, you're getting, you know, you're getting an audit today. You're going to have a test. And you sit down and you have to answer all the questions. And if you fail anything here, you know, you're not 100% in the inspection. So you fail. You're no longer, you're no longer, you're grounded. And I think we need to make sure that 
election integrity is so important that we value this and people have to have confidence in elections so if if we could have a a process in place where we have quality control we have inspections that will clean up all the cheating that's going around across the state and not just intentional cheating you know people that make mistakes there's a lot of people who are in the election process that make mistakes and some of them probably are unintentional but the process is flawed so that's what I would like to see um, it definitely requires uh, it requires a lot of work and it requires a lot of oversight check double check and double check I know people are asking for audits and forensic audits but if the process is flawed you're still going to come out with the wrong numbers. Hmm. Now, we have a lot of people we're seeing from the left. Uh, when you say we want to clean up the voter rolls, you know, you want to go after people that have moved out of state, no longer live there, or uh, not, don't even live in the district that they're uh, registered in. Uh, you have people that have, are deceased uh, that are still on the voter rolls. You know, um, we were doing a couple of years back door-to-door for a, uh, uh, a school board seat to get the person as a write-in petition candidate. And we succeeded, and he is on the board. But it was amazing how many doors that we knocked on that when we compared who answered the door to what was on the voters' roll, uh, I would say about 25% were no longer legitimate. You know, we were doing this for a, a petition candidate. And imagine what would happen in a general election, how many faults are on our voter rolls. And this is just my one little tiny precinct here. You know, of a couple of hundred right, people. Ex- 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 right. So you see that, that, that that's a quality control issue. These people died, right? Um, so they need to come off the voter roll. Who's responsible for the voter rolls in your county? You know, that person should no longer be in that job anymore. You know, this is serious stuff, elections. And, and this is why so many people now don't even want to vote. They feel like, oh, the process is flawed. My vote doesn't count. And the process has to be fixed. And we need to take elections seriously. You know, it was, it, the funny thing is, is, why can't we do the voter rolls and clean them up as fast as Social Security cleans up theirs? See, now, my husband passed away at uh, 9.17 p.m. on June 30th, the last day of the month. And when his check did not hit on the 15th, because he lived through the entire month from the 1st through the 30th, their answer was is that he had lived another uh, was it uh, two hours and 48 minutes? If he made it one minute past midnight to the July 1st, I would have seen his Social Security check. A mere two hours and 48 minutes, and they were that precise to clean up their Social Security rolls, we can <laughs> clean up our voter rolls. Right. Yeah, yeah I think a lot. Of, I think sometimes, yeah, well, I think sometimes politicians, they don't want to fix the problems. Because that way they they keep their jobs, right? Create chaos, uh, so mm-hmm. y- you have a job, and you know it, it's sad, but it's true. And and every state has their issues, and and every state should, you know, we the people need to be uh, demanding election integrity in every state, and and really look into the process. And people who have cheated the system, people who have blatantly uh, have done, you know, bad things. They should be fined. They should be going to jail. This is serious. This is serious, serious, serious. And, you know, uh, you know, I think also, too, the old way, we voted, you know, you voted on one day. You went in and you voted. 
you, you don't vote, you know, two months ahead of time. And these mail-in ballots, you don't even know if that's the person. Ballots right. could come to someone's right. home and someone else could be filling them out. So it's pretty obvious to me that there's no, um, there's no quality control here in what the Democrats are trying to push. It's, that's pretty obvious. But they want to say, oh, well, you know, these people couldn't vote. Well, everyone can get up and vote. Not, I mean, and, you know, absentee ballot, there's a reason for absentee ballots. There's a process right. you, you request it. And see, it's a nice, good, secure process. And that's all I want, and that's all I'd like to see in the future. And I, I actually would be a good person, like if we had a committee for this, to, mm-hmm. to, with my background in quality, in systems and processes, and in software, this is the kind, these are the kind of smart people we need to get together to clean this up, because it can be cleaned up quickly, but they choose not yeah, to do now it. Now, what, what about voter, what about presenting a, a federal or state-issued ID when you go to vote, even including oh, think, when you do absentee voting. Well, when you vote, you should show an ID, and I think you should show multiple forms of ID with all the counterfeit things that are out there and identity theft and where we are in America. Uh, it's, it's very important to show ID and for for some groups of people to think that that's not you know, a good thing, that that's just ridiculous. Well, I think yeah. it's part of their strategy, you know, the left to make that an issue so that they can have room to um, do what they do best, and that's commit fraud, election fraud. You know, I mean, anything else you have to have an ID for when you you go to, say, like the Democratic Convention, which also have walls around their convention, and you know, you need an ID to get on an airplane and things like that. And for them to always make the minority community seem like they, there's a saying um, in Asia that um, China was once a sick, sick man of Asia. In other words, um, China was always the um, the weakest and the unfortunate and, you know, the, the down and out um, country over there. Well, here is the, the, usually the black community and maybe some other minority uh, communities that are looked upon as victims. And and the left is good at portraying all these people as victims, and they use that to their advantage. And um, unfortunately, we have some on our side that go along with some of these policies that allow for um, these, these folks to have extended voting days, which, like you said in the beginning, when I was growing up, there was only one day to vote, and that's it. <clears throat> we have early voting here in Florida. I mean, it's like two weeks early, and that's more than enough time for people to get their butts over to the polls and vote. I don't know what else they want, and I don't think it should go beyond the date, you know, the main date, voting date, which it did the last time. Because, see, by then they know how many they need to make up, how many votes they need to make up, and they could commit all kind of fraud as I believe was done in 2020. I think what was done to our election system in the last election is just, but thankfully here in South Carolina, we passed the laws to pull everything back and go back, but that's what we need to have all these states do, go back to what it was pre-pandemic. But the Democrats don't want that because that's how they steal an election, isn't it? Is that right, uh, Ingrid? 
Um, yes, the Democrats don't want to put, you know, quality control, good systematic, you know, rigorous uh, processes in place. It's very obvious to me, and I think it should be obvious to everyone, that w- what they try to push is convenience. And convenience is uh, not, it's not the best because, um, it, it, and they want to say that, oh, you didn't have a chance to vote, so we're giving you more chances to vote, when it actually is just creating a, you know, cr- creating more irregularities, more um, ways to beat the system. That's yeah. what I see. And, and they even say that, oh, you're a minority, they're trying to oppress you. Uh, that's why the other side doesn't want this. When no, that is not the way. That that is not true at all. And we we have to have a hardcore, solid, accurate system in place. That you cannot cheat it. You cannot cheat it. And if you do, you you, you should be going to jail. There should be stiff fines for this stuff. And laws are not being enforced. People are getting away. And, no, and it's that's too bad because that's what's happening well, across I wanna, the country. I want, I want to meld this question in with some of the stuff we just discussed. First off, your technical background, your your knowledge of of cyber terrorism, um, your knowledge of all the technical ends of things, yes. as well as you you're willing to protect our borders and our country. And something that uh, Curtis had mentioned about China, the rising threat of China on our nation with the cyber threat, cyber warfare. Um, now they're assisting Saudi Arabia in developing ballistic missiles. Uh, they are now, when we gave up Afghanistan, uh, China can now control the entire Muslim caliphate, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, moving now into the Saudi uh, Peninsula. We've got a new caliphate controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, and no one is paying attention to this rising threat. This is what I want to say, you know, about China, the Communist Party. Um, China, they kill their own people. You know, you're you're only allowed to have one child. Uh, You know, people have escaped. You know, they had another child. They had to leave. This is what we're dealing with. This is, you know, definitely a, a bad actor. And cyber, the cyber warfare has been going on for a really long time. And they're just getting more advanced. They can hack into systems. We get phone calls all the time on our cell phones. We get emails. We, you click on a, a, on a link, and now your computer is bugged. Uh, when I was flying, you know, my aircraft in Iraq, a few times I had a complete system failure flying the aircraft. You know, it was like the blue wow. screen of death. Everything went down. So we can no longer oh, perform geez. our mission. And, you know, so we had to, you know, fly back to base. Now, how could this be possible, right? How could you're, you're flying a top secret mission and you're doing some really, and everything would crash. So I was very upset over that. and We, we needed to fix the problem. Oh, At the end of the day, oh, it was a software problem. It was a software problem. It was software coding. And we had predators and advanced technology in Iraq and Afghanistan that were hacked by the enemy. Um, you know, they're smart, the enemy. They, they, but it was our failures. It was 
software code being written that was just good enough, right? Contractors, they bid on something and they go over the statement of work and they figure out, okay, this is what we need. And it's just good enough. And I've heard this term in the software industry. And that's, that's terrible because we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about law enforcement, people who they're in the, in the heat of the battle, they're in danger, and it shouldn't be good enough. It needs to be life-saving, quality control. No one, should, no one should be on a mission and, you know, their software, you know, just goes completely out, completely dead because of a software bug. But this happens all the time. Well, you and know, people don't realize how, how insidious China is involved in every aspect of our lives here in America. And I'll just take a very simple, because you're talking about, you know, the, fl- the planes that you flew. Um, when the B-35s were first coming out, um, I was highly involved in whether or not the county was going to buy the business park across the street from the air station. And I got to understand the B-35s, the A, B, and C, the difference between all three of them uh, and their purposes. And then as I was learning about them and they were being developed, um, I was noticing that there were a lot of problems. And every time there was a major problem, it was because there was a part or software that was either influenced or manufactured by China. And the question was, is why did we give our information on the steel frames of our B-35s to China to let them manufacture parts? I mean, the pilots were flying and they were starting to black out because of the air circulation system was being interfered with by parts that were made in China. Why are we allowing our enemy to produce parts for our military equipment that our men and women rely on keeping them alive and completing their missions made by our enemy. It made absolutely no sense, and it just infuriated that crap out of me. Uh, exactly right, and this is that's why you got to look at look at Biden and the, and the and the deals that he's made and these business deals with these other countries. You know, taking the work from Americans and you know outsourcing it to these other countries. It's just not right. It's it, it's anti-American. It should be made in America by Americans for Americans. And we've sent so much of our industry overseas by overregulation and taxations. And that's another huge problem, which causes now China, again, to buy into our companies here in the United States. They're buying up farmland and, and food processing plants left and right here in the United States. Why aren't we food independent, energy independent, and made in America independent? We, that 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 is the leadership that we need. We we need um, leaders in Congress and at all levels. That um, what did you say? That line <laughs> that we need that <laughs> like that. You know, American safety. I would say American safe, American made, American strong, American everything. Because <laughs> um, yeah, that's what we need, I, I, and we we need we to be self sufficient. Yeah. Under Ronald Reagan, we used to have commercials on TV said, buy made in America. You don't see that. I mean, you go into Wally World. Who does, anyone who doesn't know what I mean when I say Wally World, that's Walmart. Uh, you go oh, okay. into Wally World, I, I, I dare you to pick something up that is not made in China, in Mexico, in India, in anywhere else but 
made in America. I dare you to find something made in America in Wally World. And yet, this is the largest place that our, our, our people are buying their real cha- retail stuff from. And I have to admit, I am guilty at times of going to Wally World because it's the only place I can get what I need from there. And we are yeah, no about, longer American dependent. No, we're not. And this is what part of my platform. We have to get Americans back to work. We've got to, people to, um, you know, stop being so prideful and, and, and get out there and work. I mean, move your body, use your brain. Um, it, an honest man's work is, you know, you, you can, you can, people need to get up and go to work. They need to have a lifestyle where they're, um, you know, using their, their brains. So many people now have dementia and other illnesses in America, you know, over obesity. We, we've got to get people back to work and, and let them understand that work is a good thing. That is what we need to have. And, and that's what I really uh, want to push is, you know, how do we get people back to work and stop sitting home and thinking that um, everything's okay and the government's going to take care of them? Well, people don't realize 85% of middle uh, American uh, uh, resources are invested in suburban uh, areas. You know, they're homeowners. Or they're not renters. They have more income and more, um, I'm trying to think of the words, uh, savings than you would if you are someone that's renting. Now, if you own your own property, you take pride in it. Um, if you're out there and you are working on a job, you take pride in the job you do and feel as if you accomplish something. If you're sitting there uh, and letting government pay your rent in uh, housing subsidized housing project or whatever you want to call these things anymore, um, and you're getting Social Security or welfare, food stamps, everything else, you know, your medical, your your tuition, where is the pride in accomplishing something and making yourself a better person? Government is making us dependent upon them. So we no longer worship God. We worship at the altar of government. How would you reverse that, Ingrid? Well, you're, you're 100% right. The, the government in these Democrat strongholds, they offer government programs that cater to that. Well, why should I go work? Well, I can, I can get this government program where they're going to fix my roof. You know, so they start fixing the roof. Now, fixing the roof is a good thing, but you, as a homeowner, you need to be responsible. We've lost being responsible, we, and that's another thing of republicanism, individual responsibility. We must be held accountable for our actions. We must instill responsibility in individuals, and there's too many programs out there that are not instilling that. It's basically, here's a handout. Uh, take it, and let's spend, 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 spend. I never want to spend money that I don't have, right? Growing up, I saved my money. I, I saved that money, and then I buy something. Uh, although I've never you know, used credit cards or went in debt with credit cards. If I don't have the money for something, I don't buy it. Uh, we need to get back to that. Many Americans, we have too much, and and we waste. We, we do a lot of wasting here in things that um, it's, they're nice to have, but they're really not necessary. So I would, I would develop programs that enable people to um, have more responsibility, take ownership, and 
get them to work, not just get a handout to make like easier for them so they can then, you know, they're spending their money on, on frivolous things mm-hmm. that right. they're really not, that not needed. Ingrid. Well, you know, we, we, we've got only a few minutes here left. And I just want to touch on one last thing here, Curtis, if you don't mind. Um, are you a pro-life? Because we're, we're seeing – we've got these vaccines that are being made with, you know, fetal tissue, um, we're, we're, and they're pushing the vaccines like crazy. And those of us that, you know, have a religious protest to it, um, no, 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 you can't have that. So they're forcing the military men and women that don't want the vaccine, who don't need it because they're healthy, to take the vaccines. And yet we have a battle between religious freedom, pro-life, the military veterans – and a leftist government forcing these policies upon us. And this is coming to a head, I think. Well, where do I, where I stand? I'm 100% pro-life. <laughs> I, I let everybody know that. I believe that we have to be a society that values life. Um, you know, life begins at con- conception, and that abortion is taking the life of an in- innocent human being. And the government, you know, should not be... Um, we should be protecting life, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's just truly unconscionable that, that a government that would facilitate, facilitate the taking of innocent life is just an abomination, really. We, we need to protect life. We shouldn't be encouraging people to end life. We need to be encouraging people to be responsible to be responsible adults, actions have consequences. And I'll always support legislation that would end abortion or lead us in that direction of ending abortion. I lived in states where they want an abortion clinic on every college campus. I've lived in states where they want the abortion pill given to um, the girls in high school. You know, we need – my sister was – a teenage pregnant woman, and she had her baby. Because we were raised in being responsible. Actions have consequences. And she had her baby, and that's my beautiful niece that I have. And then she went on, she had other children. This is what is the fundamental essence of valuing life. I never mm-hmm. want to kill anything, right? And, if, and we just become a culture that thinks that's the first choice. That I don't think that's healthy for our, and that's not healthy for our community. No, no, no. As as to our military protecting them, because we've got men and women that are being forced out of the military. They love their country. They volunteer to serve, and all of a sudden the government says, "Well, if you don't take this jab." As a matter of fact, um, the lead uh, guitarist for Judas Priest went into a major aneurysm and to have open-heart surgery for 10 hours just an hour after being forced to take the jab. These men and women don't need the jab. They're healthy, and they're being forced out of the love of country to leave the military service. Yeah, we, we lost a lot of Marines. Um, they all got out. They refused to take the jab. They, I, I agree the government should not be forcing them. Everybody's body's different. Everybody reacts differently, even to an aspirin. And I know people that have had now heart conditions and uh, kidney problems. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in, in those vaccines that um, 
affect everyone differently. So I think it's terrible that they're doing that. But, you know, when we join the military, we're government property, right? So we've got to do what they say. Mm -hmm. But I I really think that this is just terrible because they're young. And I know a few people right now that had the jab and everything else, and they all have COVID. And some of them had it seriously. So the vaccine is not 100% cure. No, it isn't. No. I got one, Go ahead, one final question for you. Um, you served in the military, so I was curious, um, has the culture towards women changed? Because I have a friend, um, former Lieutenant um, Governor Jennifer Carroll of Florida, who also served in the military, but at the time she faced a lot of sexism and harassment. What is your your observation being a female. Well, I've always been the only female in sports and working with, you know, in a male-dominated career field. I would have to say, you know, have I ever, um, have I ever been discriminated against? Of course I have. You know, have I ever been in situations where, um, you know, there are sexist and all those things? Yes. But you have to be a strong female. You have to speak out Mm -hmm. immediately when something like this happens. You cannot allow it to go on. And many women are put in situations where they don't know how to deal with this. They didn't speak out. So So then the behavior continues. And this is where you have to have the courage. Um, but yep. I really, I mean, I can, I can write down all the scenarios of, you know, when this all happened to me, you know, maybe in a, in a book one day. Um, <laughs> but that's where I really think um, women need to be strong. And this happens not just in the military. This happens in the civilian workplace, in fields where yep. it's male-dominated, in the financial sector, in all these, and, and many of the women don't know how to deal with it. But then when they do face it straight on, they're called the B word, right? They're called <laughs> this or that. Because when, when a man's coming on to you and you don't go along with it, now their feelings are hurt. So now, you know, now they can start treating the person badly when, you know, their feelings were hurt, they got turned down. So these things happen. I always say you, you have to be professional. You, you, you have to set standards, right? You have to set uh, barriers. There's certain things that you just can't allow. And and this is where Republicans have, they didn't stand strong and steadfast. Like, I really can't believe that we have transgender men that are going to be competing in women's sports. This is something that should never happen. See? No. This is where you got to stand strong and firm, and you need to say, Excuse me, that is unacceptable, whether it's, you know, the foul language, whether it's the sexist comment, but as, um, as a woman or even as, um, you know, religious person or anything, it's, it's about respect. And, and there's some professions and some industries and some cultures that they really don't have respect. They don't have respect for you as an individual. It had nothing to do with male or female, right? They just no respect. And once you've lost that respect, you know, in a relationship or anywhere, it, it's hard to get it back. 
You know, Ingrid, you and I could probably sit down and write that book together between NYPD <laughs> and the Army. I can tell you, we probably have stories to tell galore. I mean, there there are so, so many times, but I always found if I did it with a sense of humor, that was like, all right, fine, you're, you're trying to get me, you're not going to get me, so, you know, try something even better. And after a while, they just gave up. I mean, one day, I, they knew when I was coming in off of midnight tour for my lunch break, they knew it. And they set it up with an X-rated film. And I go into the lunchroom, and I see what they're doing. I grab the couch in front. I curl up, and I go to sleep for my lunch hour. The next time I came in, they said, uh, ain't worth it. <laughs> She's not going to fall for it. Wow. You have, to, you have to find ways in which to do it with a sense of humor. And in the end, you win. And as long as you can prove that you can do the job as equally as well as them and you, you prove to them that you, you love the job and you're there to do 100% every single day, you'll get the respect. And you did. You earned the rank of lieutenant colonel. God bless you, ma'am. Thank you. Well, Ingrid, people can find you at Centurion. That's C-E-N-T-U-R-I-O-N, CenturionForCongress.com. I wish you a lot of luck, and I'm going to see you in March. Yes, thank you so much. It was so great. You see, we can talk forever. <laughs> yes, and, you know, Linda, Linda was on the phone with me last night, and she goes, well, she only wants to do half an hour, and I don't think you can get her to do a full hour. And I said, watch. <laughs> I said, watch. <laughs> yes, I can, I can. I can. <laughs> Did she send you the picture that I sent her last night of my Christmas decoration in the living room? I don't she did think not. so. I don't think so, yeah. Well, I asked her to send it to you. Um, I have a full-size Trump in my living room. Believe me. Wow, it, 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 wow, it, it, wow. it turns heads. It turns heads when people <laughs> walk in. <laughs> All right. Well, God bless well, you. Well, thank and you. And I will see you in March. All right, Linda. All right, thank you. Uh, see you Ingrid Centurion, check her out, centurionforcongress.com. There's a link on the show page that you can click on and go to her website and help her campaign because it looks like District 1 here is really, really filling out. I want to welcome those that are joining us in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio. For some reason, YouTube went down on me. So YouTube, I'm going to end up redoing the video and putting it up on YouTube later on. It is up on Facebook uh, so you can always go over there. Uh, there's some people already over there in the chat room on Facebook. And I want to say a special hi to Sue in the chat in the uh, studio. And Sue, just to let you know, I was hanging up my Christmas cards last night, and yours that I dr- addressed to you, did not put a stamp on it, fell out of the middle of the stack. So it's going out in the mail, Sue. You'll get it probably in the next couple of days after Christmas. I mailed out over 65 uh, Christmas cards, Curtis, and the only one in the wrong pile was Sue's. <laughs> so, oh, God. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was, it, it was, this is the Christmas, like, I, from hell. <laughs> Anything they could possibly, you know, I, I tell you, folks, if you're ever going to go get surgery, don't do it over the Christmas holidays. <laughs> it, it makes no. it really, really tough. Oh, so anyway, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to carry all those packages, <laughs> especially if they're giving you the gifts. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we're waiting for our next guest to call in, uh, Billy Prepe, who's running for Congress out of um, uh, New Jersey District Nine. I just sent a message to his manager saying we're waiting for him to call in. But in the interim, there's so much more to talk about. Let me get uh, this out of the way. 
Um, I made a, a mention about uh, Fauci earlier, and this is no joke. This is absolutely no joke. Um, it was it was a scoop. Um, Fauci is an appointed. He's not an elected official. And yet this administration treats him as if he's on par or above President Biden. When is anyone going to slap this guy down and say, oh, wait a minute, you're just a little government cog. You're not someone that should be out there doing a government policy. You're here to advise the president and let the president make a decision, as if this president is capable of making a decision, much less the vice president. Uh, yeah, yeah. Been, oh, sorry, we, we got to go. We got to run to Susan Rice first. He's, he's been coach, and he, know, he he will come out and admit he can't say or do something unless they they tell him. <laughs> well, this was reported in Forbes, and um, a very unhappy Fauci took aims at Jesse Waters, um, also Tucker Carlson too. Um, Jesse Waters was uh, speaking to, uh, was it uh, uh, Turning Point USA, I, I think, or is, it's one of those where it was a bunch of mini reporters, and they were trying to get these young kids to be like Project Veritas. Go out there and do the kill shot. Now, if anyone mm-hmm. who is a reporter out there that, that knows journalism or you know, commentary or something like that, you know, the kill shot is where you ask that gotcha question question that really turns around and you know that you just want to wait you want to wait you want to wait and now hit them with that one question that will turn around and go bada boom and he jesse what is saying you know go out there you know when you see fauci out there in the public talking go for the kill shot go for that question that exposes him for the hypocrite the, the totalitarian that he is Expose him for the lies that he is spreading. And Fauci didn't like that. Oh, my goodness, Curtis. Imagine this. Fauci didn't like the fact that his authority is going to be questioned. How dare they? Oh, my goodness. But you know what? The only remedy to Fauci's hurt feelings is you got to fire Jesse Waters. Now, can you believe a government bureaucrat telling a private organization who to hire and fire? Yeah, Is that I how mean, much power this man has? Apparently. It, at least in his mind, he thinks he has it. Is this the new form of cancel culture? If a government official doesn't like what someone is saying as a commentary... You fire them, you cancel them, you close them down. And oh, by the way, anyone wants to know, I've been closed out of my own Facebook account. I cannot sign in into it. I've got to go through a back door in order to access my Southern Sense you know, account, So, which is why we had a problem with getting the video up on there. But the video is now up on Facebook, up on Southern Sense. But uh, yeah, I'm a victim of that. And they've, they've taken down my Tea Party page twice. They've gone after my Southern Sense page at least twice. This is now the third attempt. Now, heaven forbid you speak to the power of the truth. Heaven oh, forbid yeah. you expose the truth. 
sounds like um, the beginning stages of Nazism. You know. Well, well CNN, your, John. Go ahead. go ahead, Curtis. Next, you have. Next, I was you have say, next, next, it'll be your family members turning you into the state. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Horrible. Well, Fauci was being interviewed by um, John Berman on the Communist News Network. I mean, CNN um, or the Clinton News Network, because uh, she's throwing a hat in the ring, folks. Watch this. Watch this. Here comes Hillary. Hmm. That should be a Christmas song. Here comes Hillary. Here comes Hillary running down the street. Pants suit blowing. <laughs> she is blowing. <laughs> oh no, I'm not going to go that far. Anyway, um, the question that Berman asked him goes: I'm wondering how much that concerns you when you hear language like that about you and your well-being. Uh, CNN New Day host John Berman asked Fauci. He noted that he wouldn't air the clip because, frankly, I think it's dangerous. Meaning the clip about Jesse Waters calling for the kill shot. Um. And Fauci told Berman, well, John, this is horrible. This is just such a reflection of the craziness that goes on in society. That guy should be fired on the spot, meaning Jesse Waters. I mean, come on. Come on, really. Now, I see people coming into the uh, studio uh, call room. If you are our guest, um, if you are there, Billy, press one so I know it is you so that I can bring you live on the air. And let's get on with your interview. Anyway, there's there's so much, so much to talk about going on over here. But anyway, as I go through, and like I said, if that is Billy in the studio, press one and I can bring you in. And here we go. Um, this is this is something else that uh, uh, we've had that chant, let's go, Brandon. And you heard me earlier, you know, go, let's go, Brandon, <laughs> when I was uh, interviewing Ingrid. Um Brandon uh, is, happens to actually be a NASCAR driver in the Xfinity series. And I was watching the race. Uh, Brandon Brown is his name. And he had actually won the race in Talladega on that day. He's only a 20-year-old kid. And this kid, Brandon Brown, is really, you know, he, he's really thoughtful. And what he did is he sat back as everyone's going through this, let's go, Brandon. And he had tons of calls for interviews. And he, he was like, well... I'm afraid to do an interview because if he loses his sponsors, he loses his ride. If anyone follows racing, NASCAR racing or F1 or IndyCar or anything like that, if you lose your sponsors, you have no ride because it's your sponsors that pay for your car, your equipment, your crew, and help you get from race to race. And then from the, the pot you give, you, you, know, you, you reward your sponsors, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then whatever's left over your pocket. You know, these guys don't become overnight millionaires doing this. So this kid had to really think really hard and well about what he was going to say to address this issue of people using his name. Instead of saying, F Joe Biden, they're saying, let's go Brandon. And he ended up writing a uh, opinion piece in Newsweek. And I'm going to read it in its entirety because this kid, you've got to really respect him. And you'll understand when I come close to the end of the interview. And this is written in Newsweek by Brandon Brown, the driver that says, let's go, Brandon. He goes, my name is Brandon. Brandon Brown, to be specific. Yes, that Brandon Brown. I am Brandon, the NASCAR driver, and unlikely mime. A 28-year-old 
who now finds himself in the middle of American political conversation. As a pro-driver, I never expected to be in the passenger seat of my own viral moment. On October 2nd, I won the NASCAR Xfinity Series race at Talladega, my first major win. It was a hell of a moment for me, my family, my team, and my sponsors. It was cliche, but it was a moment I had dreamt about my entire life. In a post-race interview after the win, I accidentally became one of the most famous drivers in NASCAR. Thousands of fans could be heard chanting what the reporter incorrectly said was, let's go, Brandon, and a mame was born. Since that race, my name has been chanted in literally hundreds of stadiums across the country, spanning nearly every conceivable sport, and then some. I've heard my name chanted in bars, at events, in the course of everyday life, and even in the chambers of Congress. I'm fully aware that millions of Americans chanting my name know little about me or about my winning at the Talladega race that day. But I have spent the last few weeks getting to know more about them, and I'd like to share a little more about myself. And the advice I got from those around my racing career was to stay quiet after that now famous interview. No one knew how my sponsors would react, and in my world, there is no car to drive without the sponsors. So I kept quiet. I turned down more press requests than I imagined someone could ever get, especially someone just starting his NASCAR career. I was afraid of being canceled by my sponsors or by the media for being caught up in something that has little to do with me. Those who thought this would go away appear not to understand why millions of people were chanting my name. Racing at 200 miles per hour doesn't give me a lot of time to think about politics. And even if I did, I have always preferred the roar of the engine to the roar of my voice. My job is to run the next lap faster than the last one. Politics has never been that interesting to me. Though, like most, I have always had the impression that politicians politicians were likely the cause of more problems than they were the solutions. Oh, how true. These last few weeks, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand why millions of people are chanting my name. I mean, besides my mom, my dad, my late grandfather, who have cheered me on my entire life, let's go, Brandon, is something I've always heard from them. But now, it's something about more than just me. I think I understand. I understand that millions of people are struggling right now and are frustrated, struggling to get by and struggling to build a life solid for themselves and their families and wondering why their government only seems to make it worse. People have the right to frustration, even anger. Listen, I buy more gas than most. I don't like the $4 per gallon has become the norm. I know the cost of everything is rising, and I know firsthand that making ends meet can be a struggle for middle-class folks like me. I have no interest in leading some political fight. I race cars. I am not going to endorse anyone, and I'm certainly not going to tell anyone how to vote. But I'm also no longer going to be silent about the situation I find myself in and why millions of Americans are chanting my name. I hear them.
even if Washington does not. 99% of my time this upcoming NASCAR season will be spent trying to make the next lap a little faster. But when I have the opportunity and the time, I am not going to hesitate to speak about issues I am passionate about or the problems we face together as Americans. How you vote is none of my business. Instead, I will use what free time I have to highlight the struggle we all feel and share as Americans. To my fans, to NASCAR fans, and to everyone who has chanted my name, I dedicate myself this upcoming season to compete hard on the racetrack and to spotlight issues that are important to me and to the millions of Americans across the country. Let's go, America. Signed, Brandon Brown. What a kid, Curtis. What a kid. If one-tenth of America thought and felt this way, what a major movement this country would have. That's true. But unfortunately, the government has our children's undivided attention, maybe sometimes five hours a day in these government-run schools where they can indoctrinate them into hating their own country and um, not even wanting to defend it. I mean, who wants to defend something they consider evil? But there are those out there, like you mentioned, who are patriots and will defend this country to the end, like you and I. So there is hope. And all we have to do is just keep spreading the gospel conservatism, I believe. I think think this kid at this time in this place will be an invigorating thing to NASCAR. Now, I've been a race fan ever since, I don't know, the first time I heard the roar of a car. And that was probably as soon as my parents brought me home from the hospital because we did not live too far from Islip Speedway out on Long Island, New York. And we could sit on, actually, we laid in the grass on our front yard and listened to the cars, closed our eyes, and imagined being at the track. And then as a treat, my parents would bundle us all up, and we would go and watch the soapbox derbies and the figure eights. And it, it, every once in a while, NASCAR would race, and you'd get Richard Petty out there. And oh, my God. And believe it or not, at the time that Petty was racing at Icebook Speedway, my then to be husband, unfortunately, my recently departed husband, Yanni, was actually racing on the same track. Not the same race, but, you know, on that track. Yeah. Also. And, you know, because his his vehicle was a heavier than most of the other cars in his division, mm-hmm. he most of the time got the trophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. And... Uh, so, you know, racing was in my blood. And those that know my family history, if you follow NASCAR Modified, especially the northern division of it, um, my cousin Jamie Tomeno was racing in the 99 uh, in the Modified. He now has the team, uh, the 99 team he runs. And uh, his his dad was really a super, super guy. Uh, loved him dearly. And uh, so 
racing is in my blood, but I think this kid at this time can bring an invigoration to NASCAR because NASCAR started to swing to the left. They were they were becoming woke. We don't need NASCAR. The only one of the few American sports left that hasn't got fully infiltrated, but in the last couple of years, they were making them move over. I think with um, – Curtis, move your microphone away from your face a little bit, okay? Um, we get you, you're doing a little heavy breathing, so I think some of the women are getting a little hot here. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think Brandon Brown is exactly the injection NASCAR needs in the backside to get them back on track. And just concentrate on the sports. You know, the fans are there to watch the racing, not to see you become how woke you are. And America is struggling. And to hear a voice like Brandon Brown out there, you know, when I now when I say let's go Brandon, I mean let's go America and f you Joe Biden. You know, it's got now a new meaning to me. And it's, it's let's go America, and let's get rid of this Joe Biden BS out of here. You know, anyway. But you said something, Curtis, which I'm going to swing into. It looks like our guest Billy Prempe is missing in action, so um, I sent a message to his. Um, agent and i haven't gotten back anything on that so i don't know what's going on there two strikes you're out anyway um ron DeSantis, uh you were talking about our government having control over our kids so many hours a day uh from k through 12 and now also into college you know DeSantis has submitted to uh, his the state governor ron DeSantis to your state of florida your very state of florida curtis the stop the woke act are you aware oh that's what it's called stop the woke Act. that's what it's called okay Uh uh-huh and it's specific aim is at the schools that push rate critical race theory you know the schools that push it um to push it out to say no tax dollars should be used to teach our kids to hate our country or to hate each other amen we need more governors like governor DeSantis. no crt if you're going to hate our country, I'll help you pack your bags. I'm sure we can get a GoFundMe going within about 15 minutes. We'll have enough money for your plane ride and your hotel or whatever else you need. You know, you want that villa in the France? I think we can raise enough money for that. You know, if you want to leave, hey, you know what? We, we, we know a couple of uh, nice Chinese uh, gulags or Soviet gulags that would uh, love to have your company. And if they got rooms for you, you know, we'd be happy to send you to uh, some of these uh uh, socialistic uh, states like uh, Venezuela, Colombia, uh, I'm sure, you know, Venezuela, you know, Ecuador, Mexico, you know, I'm sure they'd love to have you, uh, your your American dollars. And uh, I'm sure we can, we can get you a plane ticket and find you a room or an apartment or something like that and, you know, get you settled in. Once you, once, we just won't let the door hit you in the butt on the way out, you know, mm-hmm. not. You know, so I guess I I think this is what we need. We need more governors to uh, to do this to say, hey, listen, stop the wokeness. You know, as uh, Ingrid was talking about, you know, the sports. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. You want a transgender league? We'll be happy to form a transgender league. But girls will be girls and boys will be boys and transgenders will be whatever they choose to be. But it is a biological fact that body mass, muscle mass, bone mass 
differs between the male and female DNA. It's DNA which creates your body the way it is. And you can't alter DNA, at least not yet. I'm sure they're working on it. I'm sure they're trying it. They've been trying it with this COVID uh, vaccine. But at this point in time, women are built muscularly and skeletally different than a man. A man has more upper body strength than a woman does. A man can run faster than a woman does. I mean, girls can run a little faster than boys up to a certain age, and then all of a sudden boys, they they spring up, they become a little bit more into puberty, and suddenly their body mass turns yeah. into more masculine, and all of a sudden they can outrun the girls. Uh, so, hey, listen, you got this swimmer here winning all these medals. This is not right for these women. That's not fair. I'm sorry. A man is a man is a man. You can surgically alter your body as many times as you want. You want to clip here, snip there, do this, do that. Ah, when you're dead and gone and all the plastic parts melted out of you and whatever, and the little DNA they're going to take out of your bones still says XY or YY or XX, whatever it is, you're male or female. That's it. It's what the good Lord makes. And if that gets, gets me kicked off the air, it's not the worst that's happened to this show. Right, Curtis? Come on. Yeah, I want to go back governors, though. We have enough Republican governors that should be as, um, how can I say, as bold and courageous as Ron DeSantis is here in Florida. And I think if they were, you know, would follow, you know, his um, behind, you know, the way he's approaching politics, like Trump, you know, being a fighter. I think we really could, you know, bring a lot of other people um, down that path to where they would, you know, want to be fighters, too. Because what Trump actually did while he was in office, he, he taught us how to fight the left. And it seems like Ron DeSantis picked up on that lesson. I'm not sure where the other Republicans' uh, governors are, but there there are a few that are fighting back, like Texas. And um, I believe Arkansas, not Arkansas, but um, New Mexico. But the thing is this, you know, we have enough that we can really, you know, unite and stand together as one united front and let the left know, you know, they're not just going to steamroll over us. We're going to fight and we're going to fight, you know, with everything we got. And I really believe that if they just follow the the path that – the Florida governor is Ron DeSantis is taking. We'll be all right. No, I I, I hope so too. Um, we've got twenty seven Republican governors, and there's no reason why we can't get them together as a block, and you know say, hey, listen, you know. Um, why don't we all unite together and put these policies in place in each one of our states? Make it un- uniform. Once we get it in the majority of states, some of these mm, halfway in between just might start to cave in and follow a more conservative route. It looks like we got our next guest in on the show, and as, oh, he raised his hand as I was clicking on him. Anyway, want to get my papers in order here as we bring on our next, which is Dr. Murray Sabrine. Good afternoon, Dr. Murray. How are you today? 
I'm doing very well, Annie. And uh, just a clarification, it's pronounced Sabrick. I apologize. I'm correct. Who got me crying now? Well, that, that's that, uh, I've been called other things, but that's the uh, that's the uh, least uh, problem in uh, calling my name. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll be I'll be on the safe side if you don't mind. I'll call you Dr. Murray. How does that sound? That's fine. Murray is fine also. <laughs> Well, you know, um, I was having fun. Unfortunately, um, Victoria booked you on the show without enough time for me to fully read your book. Uh, so I started to go through it and I was speed reading it. And you actually sent me back quite a few decades to college in 19... 19- uh, and my marketing <laughs> classes. <laughs> you like that one? And, you know, I, I have to admit... Um, I went through uh, a community college, but uh, I, the classes I, I thought in marketing were were so awful that I actually sold the book back to the bookstore, still in the cellophane, with a 4.0. And the only reason why I got the 4.0 is that I went exactly uh, half the days plus one. If I didn't show up that last day, she was going to fail me. <laughs> but that's how bad the marketing courses were being taught in college. And you know, hmm. here I am. You know, a, a, a 18, 19 year old kid, and I'm going. This is a joke. You've got to be kidding me. This is not based on real marketing principles. Now, I have to admit, um, I had been starting selling things since like the age of 11, and I had the gift and knack of sales. And by the time I was 20, I had a travel agency with 13 part-time employees, and that's straight out of college with a business degree. So I had the knack. And if I could see the fault, a kid could see the fault in what is being taught in colleges, I am dying to delve into your entire book, and I'm sure we can do a three-hour show easily on just half the first half. Absolutely. Thank you so much for those kind words. Uh, No, this book was a labor of love because uh, the proposal was written uh, two years ago, and it was submitted to the publisher, and they approved it uh, uh, two years ago, January of uh, uh, 2020. And I started writing it uh, uh, last summer, last fall, and uh, it was sent to the publisher this spring and uh, went through the uh, editing process, and it was published on October 5th. And the book offers a lot of valuable information for anyone who is a business decision maker, whether you own a mom-and-pop shop on Main Street or a larger business in um, a region or you're a head of the CEO of a president of a major corporation. Uh, there's something there for everybody who has to dis- who has to know what's going on in the economy, and uh, how the economy will be affected by the Federal Reserve's policies of manipulating interest rates and all of this uh, quantitative easing, which is the polite name of money printing, uh-huh. which is a polite na- which is a polite name from stealing from middle and lower income folks to uh, uh, upper income folks who benefit from these cheap interest rates. And so, what we have to do is unpack where the economy is, where it's been and where it will probably be going in this decade. I mean, that is a tremendous, colossus job. I mean, we have gotten ourselves so twisted around and upside down and backwards, and you throw in the woke society, the push for socialism, and, you know, when you try to look at what a real true market economy should be and what the mess we have gotten into, it's like you've got a universal size cat ball that is a huge nothing knot that you can never find even the end to start unknotting it with. 
I mean, how do you start unknotting this? I mean, you start in your book using SWAT. And for those who don't understand what SWAT is, it's the, the basic thing that anyone is going to do before they go into business or they go to take over a business or whatever. And can you explain exactly what it is? Yeah, this is something that uh, students learn in either a management course, a particularly a management course or a marketing course. And that's called SWAT is a abbreviation for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and strengths. And the strengths and weaknesses are internal to the corporation or business, and the opportunities and threats are external. So what I do in the book, in that chapter, is to give entrepreneurs the opportunity to see exactly where their business fits in terms of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. In other words, a self-assessment. What are the great strengths of your business? What are the weaknesses? How can you address them? What are the threats to your businesses? And, and what are the opportunities? Because uh, after doing all this research and studying business for, what, a half a century now, there is tremendous opportunity, especially in the age of the Internet, where young people have decided that, uh, well, a lot of them, not, not everyone, obviously, decided they don't want to work nine to five for, for, a, uh, for a boss because they want to be independent and they want to be creative, uh, much more ability to be creative on your own than working in a, in a business environment. And so I'm just amazed at how many young people are doing this. I, I've said this over and over again. I think this is the most entrepreneurial generation in, in my lifetime because uh, youngsters have seen businesses go down the tubes during the uh, housing bubble burst of 2008. They've seen uh, the COVID uh, situation where the government created a uh, a downturn in the economy. It wasn't a typical business cycle recession. And they said, I can't, I can't be involved in an economy where there's too many variables outside of my control. So I want to be an entrepreneur where I can control a lot of things and hopefully provide things of value, which is the key to entrepreneurship. What are you providing of value to customers where they're going to go, where they're going to flock to you no matter what state the economy is in? And that's really the key to one of the, um, the successes of business people is they know what the consumers want and they address those needs despite all the things that government does, high taxes, uh, regulations that, that really undermine business uh, formation or business um, efficiency, and, of course, the, the monetary area, which the book talks about in great detail, of why we have these booms and busts, and there's no mystery as long as you understand economics and finance and you can understand how manipulating interest rates creates these uh, booms. We saw this very clearly during the housing bubble. The Federal Reserve kept interest rates low for a long time under Alan Greenspan, and money just flowed into the housing sector. You had massive speculation, which was detailed in great length in that wonderful book, The Big Short, which was turned into a, a terrific movie by uh, Michael Lewis. I urge everyone to read uh, that book or see the movie because it really gives you a good uh, overview of how this housing bubble unfolded. So if we want to prevent bubbles and then bursting of bubbles, the Federal Reserve has to stop manipulating interest rates and allow, and allow short-term rates to find their own level based upon a market economy of supply and demand. Instead, the Federal Reserve's ideology and economists who support that ideology think it's important for the Federal Reserve to pump money in to give us uh, stimulation, as they call it. All it does is create speculation and, uh, and uh, inefficiencies and unsustainable economic activity in certain sectors of, the sectors of the economy, like we saw in housing. We see it occasionally in the automobile sector and other sectors, uh, like um, anything related to the housing sector. Uh, we see it in uh, commodities. Commodity prices boom during uh, a bubble. 
And uh, we're seeing that to some extent right now where commodity prices are going through the roof. And so the question is, how much of the commodity price boom is associated with uh, Federal Reserve policy of easy money and how much is associated with supply-demand factors and disruption in the supply chain? So you have to untangle everything to know what the state of the economy is in. And right now, it looks like the economy is starting to slow down a little bit. The Federal Reserve announced it's going to start raising interest rates next year because inflation is much higher than they predicted a year ago. And so the Fed has a very terrible track record when it comes to turning points in the economy and all these economic uh, variables. So I'm not a big fan of the Fed. In fact, former Congressman and presidential candidate Ron Paul wrote the book End the Fed, which uh, is really my sentiment exactly because we had we didn't have a Fed before 1913 when uh, the, right. uh, Woodrow Wilson signed the uh, bill creating the Fed. And the economy grew by leaps and bounds with bubbles along the way because private banks and the first and second bank of the United States, which was a government-created entity, uh, inflated the supply of money, giving us speculation in land and railroads and canals and other sectors of the economy in the 19th century. But throughout this whole period of booms and busts, the economy has grown long-term. And the reason is very simple. There's savings in the economy, which is used, which are used by entrepreneurs to build factories, to build other capital goods industries, which are necessary to produce consumer goods. And that's how a free market economy works. We don't need, quote, stimulation from the Federal Reserve or stimulation from the federal government spending money that they don't have, because if the federal government was honest with the American people and the American people were honest with themselves, they would say, okay, the federal government is spending X amount of dollars. Well, we should be willing to be taxed to support that spending. But instead, the American people want it both ways. They want relatively low taxes. And if they do want higher taxes, it's not on them. It's on people who, who earn a lot of money, the so-called 1% mm -hmm. or the 10% that pay most of the taxes in the country. And so there's a lot of dishonesty going on in this country regarding government spending and taxes and regulation and, and the Federal Reserve. So I try to focus on the I focus on the Federal Reserve in this book. Government spending is a whole nother book uh, that I probably won't write. Uh, in fact, I did write a book something like that in the 1990s <laughs> called Tax Free 2000. How we could have a tax free society where we would have sustainable prosperity and we would have everyone enjoying the fruits of a, a free market economy. So that book was published in 1995, and so uh, next month is the 26th anniversary of that book. And then I wrote a book in, in, in 2019, or it was published in 2019, on, uh, with a very provocative title, Why the Federal Reserve Sucks. It causes inflation, recession, bubbles, and enriches the 1%. And then the other book I wrote yeah, this year is, is on medical care, why we need to get the government out of medical care, lock, stock, and barrel, because uh, the doctor-patient relationship is the most important one of the most important relationships we have in our society, and the last thing we want is the government interfering with people's private medical decision making. Well, you know, you you just said, you said a whole mouthful before I can say boo. <laughs> but you know, uh, being of a generation close, very close to you, uh, but not that close. <laughs> I got I got to give myself a little pride here. Um, I came up with uh, Richard Nixon at that, at that point dropping the gold standard. It, I think that was right. the biggest mistake ever made. Well, the first biggest mistake was creating the Fed. Uh, that right. was number one. Number two was then dropping the gold standard because our dollars are not backed by anything. And isn't this right. what Nazi Germany did uh, just before World War II? Uh, they dropped 
they had the currency backed by absolutely nothing. So now we've got the quantitative easing, and now our dollars do not have the bang they had when Trump was in office. I mean, my gasoline here in South Carolina has already doubled in price in yeah. 10 months. Yeah. Yeah, this this is what happens when you have people in, who are in positions of power and decision making at the federal level uh, p- putting together policies that are counterproductive to uh, the American people and do not achieve the objectives that they want to achieve. I mean, one of the objectives of the Fed, which is totally bizarre. In fact, the uh, late Paul Volcker, former chairman of the Fed, um, who tamed the inflation in the late 70s and early 80s, said he's never seen anything of a 2% target rate of inflation as, as uh, uh, the, should be the purpose of uh, Federal Reserve policy. Why is 2% inflation a magic number when we know that in a free market economy, and this is a key point that most economists do not understand and the talking heads on TV do not understand, that in a free market economy, prices slowly decline therefore increasing living standards for everybody who's working is the essence of, of a free market economy that is missed upon all these uh, policymakers at the Fed and economists who win Nobel Prizes spouting nonsense about the economy. So in a free market economy, prices fall. As we've seen during our lifetime, in real terms, prices have fallen for computers and other things that are high-tech, high-definition television has probably dropped about 80% in real terms since I bought a, an eight, uh, a TV, I guess, in 2007. And uh, what I paid for a 37-inch TV, I think, is now you can buy, uh, I think, a 65-inch TV. That's how prices mm-hmm. have come down in, in the high-tech world, which is, is an example of the great innovativeness of entrepreneurs, that they're able to take a product and, and drop the price over time, improve the quality, which means that we enjoy the benefits as consumers of all the wonderful uh, this, uh, tools that they have in the business world to make uh, products more available well, to isn't, us. Isn't the perfect example of that the automobile? When you think about when the automobiles first went into production and now today, how easily it is for an individual to own an automobile. I mean, it was the highest-end luxury item you could absolutely purchase. And if you had one on the block, the whole block was around. And the second you started up, the kids were all around because it was an anomaly. But today, if you don't have a car, that's an anomaly. That is the perfect example of free market economy. Well, also, if you look at long-term, the price of gasoline, um, the price of gasoline in real dollars has come down quite a bit since the end of World War II. The price of gasoline is, in, in real terms, cheaper than it was when uh, World War II ended. And so, uh, again, a tremendous productivity in the oil sector because uh, there are very smart people uh, knowing how to drill for oil, getting it out of the ground cheaply, and uh, that's available to us. At, and, of course, the other thing is look at the miles per gallon. We used to get in the 60s when my father uh, had a car, in the 50s when he first bought his first car, uh, you were getting maybe 10, 12 gallons uh, Per mile, oh, I'm sorry, 10 miles per gallon. Now you're getting 25, 30, 40 miles per gallon. So in real terms, it's a lot cheaper to drive it, uh, a car today from the gasoline price than it was uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago. So when you add everything up, uh, the American economy is going to continue to grow because American people are inc- incredibly innovative. There are a lot of great inventors out there, 
And we've seen all these innovations the last 30, 40 years that have made life a lot easier, able to diagnose diseases sooner, which means that people live longer lives, healthier lives. And so there are a lot of wonderful things happening, but the fly in the ointment is, of course, government policy. No matter where you are in the uh-huh. world, government policies uh-huh. are counterproductive to they increase poverty and uh, they increase inequality. And so if people really want to reduce inequality, then we have to have the Fed stop inflating because that inflation of uh, money benefits primarily uh, upper-income folks who are the initial recipients of the new money. And how do I know that? Well, I wrote a dissertation about that 40 years ago. And that's what the data show, that the new money usually enters the economy through the big cities. And that's what the data showed when I was doing my dissertation uh, more than 40 years ago. Now, however, this is the interesting thing. If I were to write that same dissertation today, I would amend the thesis and say the money is not only flowing to the big cities through the banking system, but it's also flowing through medium and small-sized cities because of all the quantitative easing. And And guess what city in the last 12 months has had the highest consumer price index? I would say New York. Not far, no, Tampa, Florida. Really? Tampa, Florida had an 8% CPI for the past 12 months. And I, I didn't do a deep dive into that data, but I saw it at the Bureau of Labor Statistics website. And I would guess it's housing because housing is about a third of the component of the CPI. So I would think that the housing component in the Tampa metropolitan region has gone through the roof, as it has in southwest Florida where I'm living. Well, you know, I'm here in South Carolina, and I've been watching the housing market. And the house across the street from me just got completely renovated, gutted, and up for sale, and it's already sold within about a month. Um, and myself, I'm doing a lot of repairs and stuff on my home, upgrading it so I increase the value of it. Because I know at my age, probably in about 10 years, I'll probably do a reverse mortgage and live off the, 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 it for the rest of my life. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm looking ahead. But 85% of middle income, medium income, is in suburbia America. It's in home yeah. ownership. And that's where the majority of it is. But the way our government is going, they're, they're making the invasion in on suburbia. It's now racist to be suburban. You now have to have yeah. um, uh, affordable housing in the middle of a suburban neighborhood. And this is what will drop property values rather than increase it. So we've got a government that has a war on our economy, on our, our, our earnings, our savings, the value of our, our wealth. So how do we fight them? and maintain what little wealth they're allowing us to keep. Well, I think the first thing we need to do is raise our voices loud and clear. We've had inflation the last 12 months at 6.8%, and we're getting close to 0%, uh, if not 0%, on our savings accounts and money market accounts uh, at the bank. And so here's another example of how the government is basically stealing from savers, low- and middle-income folks, and providing cheap money to speculators on Wall Street and others who are benefiting from the cheap interest rates. Now, of course, if you're a house uh, home buyer, you like low interest rates. And, and, but the problem with that is it's that inflated uh, housing prices across the country, which means it's more difficult for young people to buy a house. So you have all these things crisscrossing across the country regarding who's benefiting and who's losing 
from the Federal Reserve's monetary policy. And it's a very mixed bag depending on where you are in the economy in terms of are you a borrower, are you a saver, are you a home buyer, are you a home seller. Um, and so you, you have to untangle this. And so in the book, what I try to do is give people some guidance as to where the economy is by looking at some key economic variables. And right now we're in, still in a boom because the interest rates are, rel- are low. And it's when the short-term rates go above long-term rates, that's called the inverted yield curve, that would be the, count, the beginning of the countdown to the next recession. So it's possible we may see that in 2022. If we don't see it in 2022, we'll probably see it in 2023, which means the recession could come as early as late 2023, but definitely in 2024 if the, invert, if the yield curve inverts in the next uh, 18 to 24 months. Are we still on the air? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, okay. This oh, is the oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, acted, I accidentally <laughs> muted myself. Dr. Murray, I had, I had surgery on my knee just, a bit, uh, just last week, and I was in the midst of changing the ice pack on my knee, so I muted myself. I apologize. But I was no saying, problem. You no know, problem. Um, I was like, well, how do we turn around and protect ourselves? Oh, yeah, stock our money away in savings accounts so we have some money to fall back on. But, oh, gee, interest rates on the savings account. Gee, my, my American Express savings account just upped their interest rate to 0.4%. I'm really wealthy now. When they lower the <laughs> yeah. interest rate, it affects the savings accounts and your investment accounts as well. So, you know, the federal government is not doing us any real – the Fed – I should say, is not doing us any real favors here. Not only aren't they doing favors, I saw a recent study which pointed out that since the uh, Great Recession of 2007-2008, trillion of interest has been lost to the American savers because of the low interest rate policy. So where did that money go? It really went to uh, people on Wall Street who benefited from that. And uh, again, if you have stocks and mutual funds, you, you've done quite well since 2008-2009. Stock market has boomed since then, but if you don't own stock uh, and you just basically rely on savings accounts to uh, generate a return for you, you've got you've been crushed because essentially you've given uh, an interest-free loan to the banks, and they've in turn loaned that money out, so th- they benefit from the, the low interest rates uh, because their cost of, of uh, funds is low and they can charge at the uh, a fairly decent amount to borrowers. So again, here's another example of. By trying to do good, quote, stimulating the economy, they, in effect, have caused enormous losses of, uh, among savers to the tune of $4 trillion, which is a mind-boggling number. And I don't know where AARP is on this issue because they haven't screamed bloody murder that their members, who are basically elderly and uh, fairly fiscally conservative, who keep their money in money market accounts and savings accounts, have been crushed by the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy. And so I'm just amazed that the, that the uh, AARP is not calling for uh, the Federal Reserve to uh, put interest rates, uh, because they have power to determine interest rates at the short end of the, uh, of the yield curve, to, uh, which is commensurate with what? A real return plus the inflation premium. So if we had sound money in, in the country, first of all, we wouldn't have inflation. That's one thing. But if we do have inflation, interest rates should reflect the inflation premium which the past year was 6.8%, and next year, uh, I mean, I have no idea where the rate of inflation will be, but it could be much higher than the 6.8% over the last 12 months, which means that if the Federal Reserve doesn't raise interest rates, just even just a little bit, 
um, people could get crushed again in 2022 because the interest rate on on savings will be a lot lower than the inflation rate. You know, AARP has never been the friend of the American public. And I found that out when they began pushing for uh, Obamacare. And the more they pushed for Obamacare, the more I realized that they were not friends of those of us that are over the age of 50. And I finally got my mom. God bless her. She's 89. You want an Italian-American, Italian grandma? I'll I'll give her to you. (laughs) But but I finally got her out of AARP and into AMAC. And AMAC has been speaking out about that. And they not only represent those over the age of 50, but they also have a subgroup for those that are not yet 50 can join as part of it. And then once you go into age 50, then you're a full member. So I suggest people check that out. Go to groups that really do support conservative values. AARP is not one of them. And it doesn't surprise me because somewhere along the way, they're making money off of it. And I don't know how yet, but I'm going to tell you somewhere along the way that they're making a profit because they made a profit when Obamacare in. They were offering those Obamacare plans, so you know they were getting some of, sort of a kickback. Yeah. But that's, yeah, what, yeah. that's what the consumer has to do. They have to look. They have to really, really shop. And in today's day and age, in the technology we have, you know, the Internet, the smart devices, whatever, it's easy to go and click on a couple of little icons and, oh, yeah, yeah, fine, this looks good, and then you got caught. You're trapped. So people, the consumer, number one is be educated. And your book is telling them how exactly how to do that, how to navigate it, and, and, and what to look for. What are the pitfalls and what are the things that are going to help you through this road? Well, this, this is why knowledge is so important. This is why uh, information is so important. Information is valuable advice because if you can avoid getting caught in the hoopla of an economic boom by expanding your business, and then when the uh, recession uh, occurs and unfolds, and you find that you've uh, built up your inventory too much, you've expanded uh, in markets that were marginal, hoping that they would turn around, and they don't. Uh, th- these are all the pitfalls of entrepreneurs during the, uh, during the course of a boom cycle where they make decisions that are not commensurate with real supply and demand conditions. And that's why uh, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to understand how the economy unfolds. And the book provides a roadmap, if you will, of how, uh, what to look for to see when the economy is starting to uh, roll over but more importantly, what do you do during a boom? And uh, th- this is really where a lot of money can be made, but also a lot of money can be made during the downturn because if you have cash reserves built up in your business, and for small businesses tend not to have a lot of cash built up because they work on very thin margins, but if you can build up cash during the boom and your competitors uh, are in trouble, you can buy up their assets at 10, 20 cents, 30 cents in the dollar and ride up the next wave and make a lot of money on the next boom. For example, Sir John Templeton, the famous uh, money manager, uh, he bought a lot of stock at the bottom of the stock market uh, crash in 1932-33, and he made a ton of money as he rode the stock market up during the 1930s as the Fed pumped money in and got a huge stock market uh, movement from 1932 to 1937. The market went wild because of all the money that went into the uh, uh, financial uh, sector at that time. So, again, uh, this is what – Chapter. This is what the chapter I have in my book called Wash, Rinse, and Repeat. The Federal Reserve for the past 100-plus years is doing the same thing. They pump money in. You get a boom. You get a bubble. They take money out in order to prevent inflation from running away, and you have a recession, depression, and then they repeat the process over and over again. But in the meantime, entrepreneurs are doing their job for the American people by creating products and services that people want. And so 
the amazing thing is in spite of all the things that the government throws at the economy, the economy keeps on chugging ahead over the long term. Well, you know, I I was listening to an interview you did with another station, and I was really surprised that there is a pattern. Well, you're saying wash, rinse, repeat, but there is an actual numerical pattern that if you can look at certain years and say, all right, fine, around this time, X, Y, Z may occur. So that way you can be prepared and realize, all right, there, we're coming up the top of the curve, and here's the top of the bell curve, and now, all right, now I have to move into step number two or three. And one of the mm-hmm. things that um, someone in the uh, uh, chat room here, Hank, Hank Jones, who has his own show here on Blog Talk Radio, uh, on Global Patriot Radio, give you a little, uh, a little no, hand there, Hank, uh, mentioned these uh, investor pools. And that was something that was really big in the late 70s, early 80s, and I remember them. And I don't know, are, do people still do these? Do they still pool together their monies to ride the economic wave together? Well, you have these uh, special uh, uh, investment vehicles called SPACs. Uh, I forget exactly what they, what they stand for. And these, this is money that's put together by wealthy people and not-so-wealthy people, and they buy uh, into companies, uh, startup companies and companies in the early stages of development, and uh, they ride them to the, so they become public, and they have these IPOs, and some of the people cash out with uh, tremendous profits because there's so much money in the system. I mean, there's trillions and trillions of dollars in, in the financial system and the monetary system. In fact, uh, the numbers that I saw recently is that there's, I think, I think $20 trillion in uh, ready available funds to the American people, whether it's wow. cash, checking accounts, savings accounts, Money market accounts. I mean, the Federal Reserve has flooded this economy with money. The money supply went up 25% last year, and this year I think it's going to be around 10, 11%. So the money supply is growing at a very rapid rate, but less than uh, last year when COVID hit. And so that money is in, in, in the system, and people are uh, creating businesses and they're getting uh, funding from um, from these uh, SPACs. And uh, that money uh, flows into the economy, and you can see the price of antiques and uh, uh, artwork and uh, exotic automobiles, they're going through the roof. I mean, they're just absolutely going through the roof. I just read in the, in the Wall Street Journal today uh, a house in Delray Beach, Florida, uh, is being sold for 60 – the asking price is $60 million after it was rent- uh, built by this uh, very wealthy entrepreneur. I mean, that would be the most expensive house in Delray Beach, Florida. Just multiply that across the country. You can see where prices are, are, are headed all over the place. Even in, in California, where uh, shacks are going for $800,000 to $1 million. I mean, it just shows wow. you how, how bubbly this economy is. And uh, to give you a long-term forecast, and here's an interesting factoid, which I came across in the research, is that every year ending at zero, beginning in 1920, has been either a depression or recession year, except 2010, when the recession came in 2008, 2009. So if we just extrapolate that, and there's, there's no particular uh, financial economic theory to explain it, that 2030 could be a real bummer for the U.S. economy, and we could have recessions along the way, like we did in the 1920s. We had two recessions after the forgotten depression of 1920-21, and then we got the big crash in 1929 to 1932. So are, is history going to repeat itself? It could. I don't, I don't know for sure. If I'm right, uh, I guess I'll change my name to Nostradamus instead of Sabrin and, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, give that advice away for free, uh, whatever that's worth. 
But the point is, we are in a bubble economy. There's no question about it. The question is, what do entrepreneurs do with that information, that overview? And that's why I wrote the book, is to give entrepreneurs some very specific advice of how their business fits into the economy and what they can do to navigate the boom-bust cycle. Wow. You know, there's it's so much interesting stuff. And like I said, uh, next time you come on, I will have read the full entire book. But having lived through a lot of this, uh, not not taught it, just happened to live through it. You know, I, I fully understand exactly what you're doing and how you're doing it. So I'm, that's why I'm just dying to read the book to you know help refresh some of the stuff I made fun of my <laughs> college professor about. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there was a point where uh, my husband and I had a printing business, and we were doing pretty well on it, and it was going very well. And we took it when we moved here to South Carolina, and we continued to do it. As a matter of fact, uh, over the Christmas holidays, we earned enough to carry us through the entire year. And that's how well that's we were doing, just the, between October and uh, December, those, just those few months, it, our entire year. And, you know, the rest of the year, we could, you know, do whatever we want. But we hit it at a point where our county and our state raised regulations and taxes. And when I got the tax bill in from the county, because here they, they tax your equipment. That includes your computer, your chairs, your desk, oh my goodness. all your assets at 100%. You, get, you pay a sales tax on everything every year. And when the sales tax came in, the bill, it was the entire value of everything we owned. And I said, wait a minute. The tax for this, the sales tax, could not equal the value of its sale. And at that point, we said, it's gotten out of hand. And after I fought with them, I said, nope. We sold the equipment. We closed the business. And at that point, 2007, we still had a housing boom. So he decided to become a home mm-hmm. inspector. Uh, oh, well, you know, 2008, 2009 hit. But fortunately, we were able to build up enough assets when we sold the business to ride the wave. And then yeah. after that, unfortunately, yeah. he got sick, and uh, he has now you know, passed. But you know, we, were, we were able to do exactly what you said. We were able to roll the assets from one into a new business and then ride the wave when the recession hit. But this is, I'm assuming, your book is going to tell people exactly how to do this, what we were able to do. Well, it's it's about being flexible and creative in 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 figuring out where the economy is, and of course, small business owners get to see every day what their sales receipt are, compare that to the previous month, the previous year, and and get a good handle as to if things are slowing down, they're speeding up, and there are seasonal factors, as we know, to business. There are uh, monthly factors uh, to business. So these are things that, that uh, entrepreneurs have to be attuned to, in order to ride out ride out the wave, because uh, that wave, if it comes crashing down on you, uh, you're out of business. And, of course, we were, saw what happened last year with the lockdowns, which was not a business cycle phenomenon. It was a government-created uh, implosion of the economy. And um, the last statistic I saw was 100,000 restaurants, I think, closed across the country. So what happened right. to all those people, those workers, uh, the owners? What happened to their capital? It was, it was lost. And so uh, uh, this is why I am, I've been a critic of government policy for so many decades, because I see the, the destructiveness of government policy and how it causes uh, winners and losers. And, and that's not what government policy should do. Uh, the marketplace is where people succeed or fail based upon their ability to meet consumer needs. And uh, that's the simple model of a free market economy. If we had more free market uh, policies, 
uh, coming out of Washington, which is basically mind your own business and let entrepreneurs do what they do best, uh, we would have a much Lase stronger faire. economy. And, and, yeah, we would have these bubbles. Absolutely. I mean, of course you need protection against fraud and all these other um, uh, things that go, uh, people can do in, in the marketplace because we know people aren't angels. That's why we have laws to protect uh, people from uh, crime and, uh, and, and fraud and all these other things that people do, uh, cyber theft and what have you. So you have to be vigilant, you have to be knowledgeable, and you have to be uh, attuned to uh, the unfolding events. And so the book uh, provides that. And if you go to my blog, murraysaber.com, you can see a flyer which uh, uh, allows you to get a 20% discount uh, from uh, the e-book <laughs> or the paperback uh, because the publisher thinks the book is so important. They want to make sure that price is not a problem, and they've offered this 20% discount uh, as a Black Friday every day for uh, – for our listeners. Well, I have to admit, last night I downloaded the Kindle. I did download the Kindle, and that's when I said I was speed reading. And I do speed read. But, you know, you're talking about government interference, and I, I, I nearly bent over backwards howling in, in laughter. If it wasn't for the fact that uh, my knee replacement wasn't allowing me to completely double over. Um, but <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, she's the gift that keeps on giving. And this was in the Epic Times. And I get the Epic Times. Um, she has pointed her finger at the grocery stores. She's blaming them for the rising food prices. So she sent out a series of these letters to three major chains. And I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I'm, I'm, it, 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 it's, it's actually sad, but it's still funny. To Kroger, Albertsons, and Publix, the three major chains, blaming them for the burdens of inflation and supply chain difficulties. Now, um, uh, did she look out at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach or New York City at the thousands of cargo ships sitting there because the unions and Gavin Newsom policies uh, wouldn't allow them to be unloaded? Uh, something about trucks being only a certain age and they can't cross the state line to get to the cargo and, and all this other silly stuff. No, no, no. That's not the problem with inflation. It's the stores. How do you battle stupidity like this, Dr. Murray? Well, this is, this is why what we have in Washington today is uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and the rest of them in the Senate and the House are intellectually bankrupt. They don't know anything about economics. This is what happens when lawyers are in charge, and lawyers tend not to know much about the economy uh, because um, they make statements like Elizabeth Warren and others about the economy, which I wouldn't expect a college freshman to make. And um, this reminds me of what my high school physics teacher used to tell our class uh, when I was a student in, in New York City. It's better to appear dumb than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And, and that's exactly yes. what, that's what, that's, that's what we're seeing in Washington these days. And, and the talking heads on TV, when they make statements about this inflation, that inflation, no, it's not a presidential uh, problem. It's a government-created institution, the Federal Reserve. So... Um, uh, in 1992, Bill Clinton wrote uh, to the White House with the slogan, it's the economy, stupid. Well, my slogan is, it's the Fed, stupid, because it's the Fed that's causing all these distortions in the economy. It's not businesses. Businesses are, are, are basically the, uh, the transmission belt for all the Federal Reserve's policies because they see their costs going up, and they either raise prices, the full amount of their costs going up, they raise it a little in order to avoid losing customers, or they eat everything and their profit margins dry up. So again, 
Elizabeth Warren is, a, is the poster child for economic literacy. That's what she is. And uh, no one should listen to her because she doesn't have anything of competence to say. She's totally incompetent when it comes to the economy. And the same thing with Bernie Sanders and AOC and the rest of the left-wingers in Congress who make statements that are really just not, not – uh, real in terms of what the economy is all about. And this is what happens when you have people who think they're smarter than the market economy of how the economy should work and who's to blame for inflation. The inflation, businesses have been scapegoated from day one about inflation, uh, at least in my lifetime. It's not businesses that are responsible for inflation. It's the Federal Reserve who enables the federal government to run all these deficits because when the federal government runs these deficits and there's not enough savings to buy up the government debt, then the Fed comes in and buys up the debt by creating new money, and that money uh, diffuses through the economy and raises wages and prices and asset values, and here's where we are today. And unfortunately for the average person, their wages are not going up as fast as inflation, so they're being what left behind in the inflation race because prices – uh, tend to rise much faster than uh, wages of uh, union workers and uh, blue-collar workers and uh, many white-collar workers. Well, now here here comes into another topic that is really important: the the national debt, our federal debt. Now we had we have still the specter of Build Back Better being dumped on us, increasing our our federal debt. And how does that affect the everyday American? Because they're thinking, oh, that's down in D.C. It's a bunch of politicians, and who cares about that? You know, so what? You know, we pay our taxes, the debt. I don't care. But they have a reason to care. It's going to affect well, each and every individual here. Well, yeah, when, when, you, when the government issues debt to cover the deficit, what tends to happen is people who buy the debt, that savings is not available for productive purposes. Uh, it's the private sector that creates wealth. It's not the government. The government destroys wealth through uh, their policies of regulation and taxes. Remember, when the government taxes you, that means you have less money to spend on your own family needs. You have less money to save for the future. You have less money to possibly invest in a business. And so government policies are terribly destructive. But uh, as I pointed out earlier, uh, despite all the things that government does to undermine the economy, uh, the economy still grows because there's still enough ingenuity and uh, capital out there to build businesses and to create great businesses that were someone's idea 20, 30 years ago, and now they're, what, a $100 billion business. And it just shows you the power of the free market. If it's left alone, and if we had a, a, a full-fledged free market, which we don't have today, we would have much more prosperity and, and, and sustainable prosperity, and it would lift more people out of poverty. And here's the ironic thing about what's going on today. The free enterprise system has created more wealth in the shortest period of time and lifted more people out of poverty in the history of the world. So what does Bernie Sanders and AOC want? More socialism. This shows you how disconnected mm -hmm. they are to reality about how, mm -hmm. the, uh, how the Western world has evolved for the past several hundred years. If you look at living standards today versus 100, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, it is unbelievable that the poorest person in America today is living like royalty compared to people 150, 200 years ago. I mean, that's the fact of life. I mean, how many people don't have cell phones today? And virtually nobody, and, and there are people who are earning minimum wage, they have cell phones. There are people who have um, earning minimum wage, and they may have a, a little laptop that could be uh, bought color for a few hundred dollars. Yeah. Color uh -huh. television. I mean, my goodness. You can Indoor get a great plumbing. Color television. 
indoor plumbing. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, microwave ovens, toaster ovens, I mean, uh, washer dryers and things like that. I mean, so the American economy, the American entrepreneur has done their job in getting uh, goods to the marketplace at prices that even low-income folks can, can afford. How many people have cars today? Even if it's not a brand-new car, people can get a used car today at a very decent price through Carvana and all these other uh, new enterprises that are out there. Where it's a, I sold my car to Carvana um, uh, a year ago because I didn't need my car anymore. And so here's a way of selling a car seamlessly. They come, they pick up the car, they give you a check, and you're done. It was a great process, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm saving a bunch of money because I, I didn't need a second car. I, I, I don't have to pay that car loan off anymore. I don't have to pay the car insurance. So, again, uh, people have been adjusting their lifestyle and their uh, situation based upon their own needs, and I just wish that people in Washington would realize that they cannot manage a $20 trillion economy no matter how smart they are. And this is the... This is what um, one economist called the, um, the, uh, the uh, arrogance of the elites. They think they are so much smarter than the rest of us. They know exactly what the interest rate should be. And so the Federal Reserve targets those interest rates. They should know exactly what government spending should be because they think they can stimulate different industries with uh, Green New Deals and whatever. But the point is this is a myth. This is a myth that's been going on for centuries that government somehow, the people in government somehow are much smarter than the market economy. This, this, this is where I think the problem is in America is that we give, people give too much credit to people in Washington because some people think that people in Washington have, have their best interests at heart and all they, are, all they want is power and um, whatever money they can get through, uh, mm-hmm. through uh, the, the, the process of uh, insider uh, uh, knowledge, as uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, acknowledged the other day, <laughs> where we should be able to trade stocks. Uh, and they, of course, they, they have information before we do, and people made a, a lot of money on the what the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, oh, the yeah. pharmaceutical stocks. Yeah, insider so trading. Whole... No, if you or I could yeah. do it, it, we would be in jail. But Nancy yeah. Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and I'm, I'm, I'm being polite because I'm a former New Yorker, as you can tell from my dialogue. There's, there's a Yiddish word that I love to put in front of Schumer, uh, and you Doctor. know which one I'm talking about. But Doctor. you know they they. They can do this, and they don't get arrested. We do. We're arrested, yeah. and we, we lose everything. Go ahead, Curtis. Yes, doctor. Um, if we were to disassociate ourselves from the Federal Reserve tomorrow, how would that in- impact our country moving forward and our economy? Well, that's a great question. I mean, the Federal Reserve is there wow. unless we change the law uh, 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 dissolving the Federal Reserve and taking its assets and, and distributing it to uh, uh, the banking system uh, and, and, and shoring up the banking system because, remember, uh, the banking system has a flawed business model. They borrow short money. They borrow money from us through checking accounts, savings accounts, money market accounts, and they make long-term loans. They make car loans. They make housing loans, commercial loans, whatever. So the that's been the problem throughout American history. That's why you had banking panics throughout the 19th century until we had the last one, the Panic of 1907, which was the impetus to the creation of the Federal Reserve. And then, of course, we had the bank runs of the early 1930s when the people wanted to get their money out because they saw the banks were shaky. So this is, this would be, this is a very important technical issue. It's, it's a problem that you need the best minds in the country to figure out how to dissolve the Federal Reserve and get us back to sound money, where money is represents something of, of real value as opposed to digital entries in a computer. Because right now we have fiat money since uh, 
And he mentioned that uh, Nixon made that egregious decision in oh. August 1971, 50 years ago, to uh, uh, sever yeah. the last link between the dollar and gold. And since then, the, the value of the dollar has declined steadily, but the economy has also grown uh, quite substantially over the last 50 years compared to what goods were available 50 years ago and what goods are available today. It's, 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 there's no comparison. I mean, you have e-commerce today, which didn't exist back then. Andy, as you know, we had the 800 number. That was e-commerce back then, yep. right? You'd, yep. you'd call up an 800 number. You had catalogs from different companies, and you'd order from the catalog. Uh, and L.O. Bean is still around. You don't have the Sears catalog Sears anymore. Sears and Montgomery Ward. Yes. What? J.C. Penney's. J.C. Penney's. Sears Penney's. Roebuck. Yeah. yeah. Montgomery Ward. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now they've gone to the it, internet, it, which is... Which but, is, but which is a great way paper, for shop. But if you ran out of toilet paper, those catalogs were good, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, <laughs> economies evolve. And with technology, it evolves sometimes very rapidly. And what we're seeing in the last 20 years is a very rapid evolution of the U.S. economy from virtually no e-commerce to uh, trillions of dollars every year. And it just shows you how important it is for entrepreneurs to be uh, – in tune to the ever-evolving technology so they can meet consumer demand. I'll give you an example that's in the book. Uh, because of COVID, uh, there's one company, a furniture company, that had to close its showroom. So they went totally e-commerce, and, and, and their sales are booming. These are the type wow. of examples I put yeah. in the book to show you that no matter what is thrown at business people, they can navigate the economy because there are means to uh, uh, make sure that their business – continues even though the government had the lockdown so you have there are other examples in the book of how companies reinvented themselves so to speak in order to survive the lockdowns which again is not a typical business downturn but it was a government imposed lockdown and so we're going to see this again over and over again of how businesses are adapting i mean look at live streaming now with the different services because people don't want to go to the movies anymore so that's another innovation that's taking place in the entertainment field, and that seems to be doing extremely well. Uh, but still, people like that experience to go to the movies, and so the movies will still be around until maybe a, a generation or two down the road where people say, I don't want to go to the movies. It's a pain in the neck. I'd rather see a movie on my, on my big screen TV or a hologram, whatever that comes down the pike in 20, 30 years. Yeah. So you don't have to go to the movies any longer. So, again, I, I'm very optimistic about the future of the U.S. economy, but I'm pessimistic in the short run because what I see happening in terms of these boom-bust cycles, that could end very badly at the end of this decade, if not sooner, because um, if the Federal Reserve really uh, clamps down on the creation of money, then the price structure has to adjust, which means that prices have to come down where you get a deflation. And then uh, if you get deflation, you tend to get more unemployment because employers are not uh, adapt, uh, adapt at uh, adjusting their prices uh, quickly and their wages. And you may see what we happened, what happened in 1929 to 1932, where the unemployment rate went to 25%. I mean, that's a danger well, facing that, the U.S. economy. It is. It is a really, really a huge danger. And you throw in what they're doing with the pandemic, using it as an excuse, using it yep. as a, uh, a a club over our head. Uh, and uh, the American public is starting to fight back. And we're seeing that not only in just the public, but in the sports 
in the entertainment industry. And the, the America is saying, no, enough is enough. And I think that may be our saving grace. And hopefully it won't take us down that that hard wave that you're expecting. But I'd love to have you back again because there's more to throw into this conversation because you now have the NFTs, the cryptocurrencies that are now coming into the markets. Yeah. Other ways in which people are now using other alternatives to our cash currency because without any backing on our currency with quantitative easing. Now, I'm, I'm a Tea Party person. I've been a Tea Party founder since 2009, and I, my party is still going strong. Um, we have our monthly meetings, and we were loud and and proud yelling about quantitative easing back in 2009, 10, and 12 when they finally t- shut down the Tea Parties, but I'm still going. So there's so much more to talk about, about how we can we can survive this economy. And your book is an excellent foundation for navigating the boom-bust cycle. And also, uh, the single-payer system, I started reading the description on that, and I'm going, who is this knucklehead that's being sent my way? (laughs) And then I started reading about what you were talking about. I'm going, dang, that's how we used to live. You know, it was Mm -hmm. just you and the doctor, no government in between. You may have had some insurance but the insurance trusted whatever the doctor said. And if you couldn't pay, the doctor said, pay me a little bit here, a little bit there. You worked yeah. it out. You, you yep. didn't have yep. this whole big government monstrosity breathing down your back, telling you whether or not you can get the care that you need. Who the hell is the government to tell me whether or not I can get this medication or this treatment or not? Who, is, who the hell are you to tell me I need pre-authorization to get this surgery? If my doctor tells me I need it, I'm trusting my doctor. I'm not trusting a bureaucrat somewhere thousands of miles away sitting in a cubicle, you know, like you know, some dastardly demon and saying, who, oh, let me fool around with this person's life and deny them, deny them. You know, we're at the mercy of unknown people thousands of miles away in some little cubicle determining how our life goes. And I think your book is a good example about why we need to take control back. Well, this is the whole point of uh, why people are so passionate about free market economics is because it's based upon uh, uh, prosperity. It's based upon justice. It's based upon individual liberty. And it's based upon having a peaceful uh, country. So we're not doing what Trump said, these endless wars, which are debilitating both uh, physically, uh, economically, financially, and psychologically. Uh, we, we need to have peace and harmony. This is what uh, George Washington warned us about in his uh, farewell address, uh, no entangling alliances and, uh, and have sound money. Again, to go back to 1913 for a second, 1913 was a fateful year in American um, history because not only did we get the Fed, but we got the income tax at the beginning of the year with the passage of the 16th yep. Amendment. So basically what happened in 1913 is that a lot of decision-making went from individuals, families, communities to the federal government. And that, and ever since then, we've had government grow by leaps and bounds. So where the government today is unre- would be unrecognizable to the founding founders of this country because they created a republic and we don't have a republic in the sense that they wanted we have uh, what uh, basically a quote a democracy which means that politicians will what uh, work the crowd in order to get them riled up to have scapegoats whether it's uh, the oil sector the business sector in general um, uh, the food stores as elizabeth warren uh, uh, demonizes and so uh, this is very dangerous stuff because uh, you could get 
somebody coming into office that's going to be very, very authoritarian. And it looks like Biden is that one because he's the perfect puppet for the people behind the curtain who are pulling the strings. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Murray, it has been such a pleasure, and I definitely have to have you back on. There's so much more to talk about. Once I finish reading the book, I mean, then we can really have a full head-to-head because, I mean, this is just touching the surface. <laughs> we we delve into all the problems because as someone put in the fair tax, and uh, I have the autographed book by both authors when it first came out, and if you pay the tax on the item you choose rather than at the April 15th, I think our, our our economy would absolutely blossom. Pay the tax you choose to pay, not what government t- says to pay. And the IRS said, uh, well, well, when the 16th Amendment came in, it was only for the most wealthiest in our, mm-hmm. our nation who will ever pay the tax. Gee, here comes the government, and they're going to tell you the truth. Well, Dr. Murray, it has been such a pleasure. People can find you at your name? MurraySeagling.com. and. My website, and you can find the flyer from the publisher that uh, gives you the code to get the 20% discount. All right, and it's also up on Amazon. There's a link on Amazon on the show page. They can click on it and go straight there and get the book. God bless you, sir, and have a very, very Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and a blessed New Year, sir. You too. Thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, discuss uh, one of the most important issues facing the American people. And Merry Christmas to all of you listeners and a Happy New Year. And let's make it a a pro-freedom New Year. Absolutely. God bless her. All right, Dr. Murray Seabrin, check check out his book, Navigating the Boom-Bust Cycle. I'm telling you, it is a must-read. I mean, we have to prepare ourselves. He may be talking about, you know, entrepreneurs, but what you can learn to help gird yourself and your bank account is very important because there are a lot of good information in there. We're down to our last two minutes, Curtis. That's all. So I will see everyone back here live come next year. This Friday, it will be a pre-recorded show. Um, I really do have to rest my knee, and uh, I'm sure my doctors aren't too happy with me right now. So I leave you with Gary Pecorella, Save America, and it's time to do that. Good night, and God bless. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I'm for this land I love, America, America, the home of the free. But there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her, or what matters most to me. That's why I stand for the plan And I kneel at the cross Mom, for the friends I have loved and lost In that